Welcome back to the Aviation RC New Podcast. You found us. My name is Joe. And I'm Matt. We're here to be with you along your journey and to share our experiences in RC Aviation. If you have any questions, thoughts, or want to share a flight story, hit us up at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com. Now, buckle in. Let's take off. All right, you've made it. It's episode 45, where we're going to talk about phantoms and LEDs. So uh, welcome back. Uh, we're going to be talking, Joe and I are going to be talking about um, an, a surprise aircraft. I don't know about a surprise aircraft, but we're going to be talking about the things we've done in the hobby in the last couple of weeks, um, a little bit of history, and, uh, and probably traditionally more modern aircraft. We've been doing a lot from World War One and World War Two, so we're going to bring it up a little bit from there. Um, and then we're going to be talking about uh, Joe's uh, work with his Phantom a bit. And then we're also going to go and talk about the, I'll call it part two of night flying, um, which is talking about all the lights that make it so you can fly it at night. Mm-hmm. What are they? How to select them? And what's, what all that stuff means? Because there's a lot of weird lingo. So let's get into it, Joe. What have you been doing the last couple of weeks? Oh man, it's uh, it's been an interesting two weeks. Um, there was a there was a personal thing that went on that I won't really talk about here because not place, but um, it's been finishing up some work. There was things going on with work that got a little interesting, um, and then just uh, playing around um, a little okay. bit. I did get to get out and fly the Phantom a little bit. I can go ahead and talk about that now, I guess. Okay, yeah. We'll um, so, uh, yeah, so I picked up a drone camera camera quad yeah. uh, last time. and It was the uh, uh, Phantom 3 Pro, right? Is what you said? Yep. Okay. Yep, Phantom 3 Pro. Uh, there was a thought that it might have been a Phantom 4 uh, before <laughs> I bought it, but then the guy went and looked and said, oh, it's actually a Phantom 3, which it's not too huge of a deal. I think there's some differences in the camera and some of the functions, right. but yeah, some of the you know, technology, uh, you know, those things go by leaps and bounds when you blink. Um, so yeah, that's probably the camera oh, yeah. and some of the flight controller stuff, but yeah, well, yeah. I mean, considering the price that I got it at three, I'm happy, <laughs> you know? Um, right. And I'm, I'm not near exploiting everything it's capable of. Um, which I've only had it for a short time. If you can explain <laughs> everything it can do in two weeks, I'd either be really impressed with you or incredibly disappointed in that drone. Well, I said, uh, how about, um, I'm going to call it a quadcopter, although it is far more of a drone to me than a quadcopter, but uh, I'd rather call it a quadcopter. Yeah, and, and I'm still looking to call it a quad. Yeah. Because by definition, it is. Um, I... It, a quad uh, is like what we're using. A drone has missiles. In my mind, that's the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, living Fair. close enough to a base that has those and uses those, and they are drones. They are big mamajamas, and yeah, that's that's what they are in my head. So, mm-hmm. go ahead. No, you so um, so uh, last episode went out on a Saturday, and actually that that Saturday I went out to some property my cousin uh helps manage and take care of and flew a um I, i'm gonna call it a survey mission but 
is aerial mapping. Well, you, so, you were just testing it to see how it works, right? Sure. Uh, a test would have been, you know, five acres. Um, I, I went for the full Monty. <laughs> well, no, I mean, okay, so you had, you had grabbed, when you first got it, you were talking about briefly that you had you were literally crunching the data as we were recording the episode last time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where you took so, some sample data from somebody else and said, oh, okay. Oh, wait, yeah. Right. That's so right. this time it's like, okay, well, we know theoretically this works. So if I can do mm-hmm. it, I'm just going to fly a battery. So how far did a battery even get you? Uh, so I'll set up what it's doing. Okay. Um, and basically it, I, I, I send the drone up, I point the camera straight down mm-hmm. and fly it. And I may have called it a drone. My bad. But okay. I send it up, I point the camera straight down. I fly, I fly in, I take pictures uh, of it looking straight down. Okay. And then all those pictures are taken after the fact and pushed through some software that stitches it all together, uh, looking at, it's basically looking at, um, the overlaps in the pictures and using that, like you line up two pictures that have overlap mm-hmm. and figure out where they overlap at and stitch them. Um, so the software is automating all that. Okay. That is called photogrammetry. That is the art oh, and science okay. of extracting 3d information from photographs. That's been, uh, that's been done by surveyors especially when you're doing large swaths of land for a long time. Usually what they do is they have a couple cameras uh, mounted on the bottom side of a plane and they just fly a zone. <clears throat> and the differences between those two cameras or the, you know, the two, you know, each run would do what you're doing right now. Uh, to an extent. So what I'm actually doing with that, and I'll take a couple hundred pictures while it's up there is called a ortho mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And it's, it's where all these pictures are stitched together into a 2D image. So yep. it's just a, a big JPEG. Now, uh, from there, it can also, as it's processing that, do things like a 3D model. Um, so then, mm-hmm. then that gets into what you were talking about, where it can extrapolate a, uh, a 3D render from it. Right. Um, well, now, when, when you're doing I, a surface model for surveying, that's essentially what you're building. I mean, you're concentrating mm-hmm. on the ground, but effectively, you're you're building a 3D model of the ground. You are, uh, but I mean, you can you can extrapolate a, a 3D enough. from that. There's a lot of um, right because it, however, it figures, and you're right. So I guess if you if you I, think about it, as a civil as a civil engineer, when we need to find information about large swaths of land so that we could reshape it for a client. Uh-huh. That's what we've traditionally used. When I started my career, that's what we were using. We would get literally a whole roll of you know, pictures from somebody flying over top. And then they would ultimately take that and use that to create what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they would do it the hard way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and it's I, come a I, long I, way since then. So, well, you have pulled the civil engineer uh, tag on me, so I'm going <laughs> to... Well, no, no, I'm just saying that, that that's the history. Uh, I'll call it, that's the history yeah. of it. And so and it, it, that's very expensive and very limiting as far as its its ability, but it covered lots of ground. That was great. So it had mm-hmm. a limited application. This, however, allows it to be much more uh, tighter in scope and lower in cost. Right, because... Well, you're getting you're getting more accurate data because we can fly lower, mm-hmm. um, 
And through the software you run, and I'll talk about that in a second, but you fly very straight lines. Right. And, you, you know, they're predicted paths that are evenly spaced. So, yes, from that perspective, uh, say one pass, because you're, say, say I'm doing a 10-acre plot, and I fly down, I want to, you know, have it go over to the side a bit and then come back. And we'll fly this grid. Now I'm only I'm not doing what's called the cross hatches or the cross flights. I'm just doing a once pass. And from there you you're getting something of your say again. I was gonna say it looks like a big snake, right? Like where you go down and across yeah, and down and yeah. across and down and across. Right. Go ahead. Um and so from there, because you're passing because you have overlap side to side of the picture and forward to back of the picture, mm-hmm. you know, you get uh, you're you're you do wind up with that binocular effect, that mm-hmm. stereo vision of each location on the area that you're surveying. So, mm-hmm. yeah, from there, yeah, that same thing. You can extrapolate three dimensions from it. I would not be want to be the guy that had to figure out how to do that, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Yeah, but it'll it'll do it. And so from that, yeah, I can render three uh, D models of a location. I can. Uh, I mean, you got a vegetation and tree cover gets in the way of some of it, but you can, sure. you can rough estimate a, uh, an elevation map so you can get an elevation map output mm-hmm. on it and kind of see the highs and the lows. Now, if it's an open field and there's nothing, you can get, you know, nice idea what the ground's doing, but there's a lot of tree cover. You're seeing what the treetops are doing, really. That's it. Um, yep. So anyway, um, so I go out there and, you know, what would it, and that's, while I will, while I may say, uh, aerial surveying is really aerial mapping is all I'm doing right now, is setting okay. it up and mapping the areas. And then I can pull information from that and have it generate different things. But, okay. uh, I would love to, uh, get better at that and figure out how to do that in a way that is beneficial and, uh, able to do stuff with it. But, um, because you're so, looking at, at ways that you can recover uh, remote control hobby costs or, or right. reduce it with, with some of – making them go to work for you, dang it. <laughs> mm-hmm. cool. And, uh, I mean, and we've talked about it a little bit where even breaking into the um, agriculture side, mm-hmm. um, you'll be able to get that. Or the mosaic map can give you a visual of your fields. But while I can do it with – this camera, um, near infrared would be nice to have in addition to the visible spectrum. Uh, mm-hmm. but you can do some basic plant stress analysis with just RGB, uh, measuring reflectance values coming off the plants. Oh, wow. Okay. And that, um, that's not even getting into like, uh, infrared where you got heat levels and all that stuff. That's just looking at. Yeah. So. The with the infrared, okay. Let, let's talk about the RGB side of that yeah, for a second. Yeah, then please we can go, bring in the near infrared. Yeah, go into that, please. Go ahead. So, and and this is all as I understand it, but okay. the the RGB areas that it's looking at, um, there's a couple layers of accuracy that you can take into this. But mm-hmm. on a basic, what I've got, I w- it it the software looks at the image and it's looking at each pixel, the green, the blue, and the red that the sensor uh, detected for each pixel. And from that, it's looking at the ratio of green, blue, and red. A healthy plant, green, 
uh, generally, mm-hmm. will is reflecting the greens and the blues um, that the sensor is going to detect. And then uh, what it doesn't want to see is the red. You start getting some red in there, you're getting that brown. Okay. Um, and so you want to see high values of green and blue, but low values of red. That says that the plant is absorbing the red, and that's why we don't see it. And so, therefore, right. it's uh, photosynthesizing uh, in a healthy way. Um, mm-hmm. When you start seeing more red uh, in relation to the other two, then you're starting to have a plant that's not photosynthesizing um, at a peak value. Okay. Um, and that's, I imagine, uh, a bit plant by plant. I don't have that information. Um, I'm trying to do a little research into that, but it's right. not... I don't imagine uh, corn stalks, a healthy corn stalk, nice green, is going to re- like reflect the same values that a um, a uh, soybean right. or a tobacco plant yeah, will reflect. I'm, I'm sure there's uh, somebody's been working on an index mm-hmm. that says, hey, this is what you should see. So to be able to compare against what you shouldn't, you know, what would you, what insti- institutes a, a problem. Mm-hmm. So, good. And so then you get into adding in near infrared, um, NIR. And okay. so what I should, I should rewind. What you're looking at there is a uh, comparison. Uh, there's a different equation uh, that I forget what it is. Uh, I think the equation is called a VARI, V A R I. Okay. Uh, that that looks at those and then it's a different equation from when you get the near infrared which will be called a ndir ndir i think um that takes into account the near infrared spectrum Uh, and that very by the way stands for visible uh atmospherically resistant index there you go uh and ndir is uh normalized difference IR something mm-hmm. um, but it's taking into account when it takes every picture included in the RGB values is the near infrared value and so every pixel has four values that's looking at and now you can get into uh, how much near infrared is being reflected off the plant as another mm-hmm. metric right yeah uh, just something that we can't see with the naked eye yeah, and it, it um, indicates problems way ahead of when they actually show up in the plant, right? Right. Um, well, it no, I mean, it, it indicates stress within the plant. Right, now. but what I'm saying is, um, you know, if a farmer's just sort of walking down their plants, it's hard to catch what's going on. Um, just by looking at it, some of those some of those effects that you were seeing are harder to pick up. Just with with walking right. past it. And just walking your fields, uh, you know, you're seeing, if you see a, as a smooth transition from lush green to maybe not quite so lush green, mm-hmm. if that transition is you're walking through the field, you're not going to see that. It's Yeah, it's going to so, be harder to detect. But uh, when you right. get to see the overall, mm-hmm. yep. Cool. Or even get an analysis wavelength by wavelength that you're, you can't really get with a naked eye. So there's... Taking into account the near infrared side of it, and then 
the layer beyond that would be uh, for both RGB and the uh, RGB with near-infrared is a light sensor on top of the quad um, or craft drone because they've got these uh, very expensive According things. to the FAA. What's that? <laughs> SUAS, Small yes. Unmanned Aerial System, according to um, the FAA. And I, yeah, and so for this one, I won't say quad because I specifically know there are has a f- uh, phantom. No, it's not phantom. Uh, I forget. Who. Oftentimes, they'll call them agricultural drones. Ryan, are you talking about those? Where they're yeah, bigger, be they have a lot of payload. They they can carry more. Well, no. So what I'm thinking I'm is, is actually a fixed wing craft. Oh, okay. Um, and those things, they fly forward a lot faster mm-hmm. it's because so much of their power is involved with the forward momentum. Right, they They're not them. spending a lot of power to keep up in the air. They're actually right. keeping the air by moving. So right. the wing is those fixed wing work. ones can cover insanely more amount of, of ground course. and it's got the cameras mounted in the belly looking down. Right. Um, and so that's why I'll say other craft, okay. uh, but they'll have a light sensor mounted on top. And every time the cameras underneath uh, fire to take a picture, it pulls in information and attaches it to the picture of how much light was available at okay. each of those instances. Um, and so what that's letting you know is how much blue, how much green, how much red, and how much near-infrared was in the area, shining down on the plants at the time that picture was taken. Okay. And then you, they're able to subtract those values out and use okay. that as a comparison. Here's what here's what was available. Here's how much the plants reflecting back. Right. And based on that, even, even more accurate uh, health analysis of the plant. Wow. Now, almost like um, kind of normalizing the levels so that you can compare maybe one day to another and make meaningful data out of it. Right, and that's very important because without the without the known value of how much light was there to begin with, it's all mm-hmm. relative. Your all your health is looking all your health analysis is relative at the time that the the flight was done, assuming a clear day with no clouds. If you have a, a cloud rollover halfway through your flight, it's gonna throw your values. Yeah. So there's that. Um, anyway, going back, <laughs> uh, that's some of the flights I've been doing, uh, is, you know, doing that kind of mapping. And so, um, rather than being safe and saying, you know, oh, I'll, mm-hmm. you know, sir, I'll, I'll map five acres. I went for the full Monty of 83 acres, uh, that he was over. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I can get more with this battery? Let's see what we can get. Yeah, so uh, because I was only interested in doing a 2D and a straight down looking, I didn't need the cross flights. Uh, so okay. say the up downs, I didn't need the left rights. The left rights would make it a, they use those for more accurate 3D model uh, rendering. Okay. Uh, but just doing, say, the up downs um, or just the left rights, that, that gives you enough to to stitch the pictures together. You just, uh, you lose out on a lot of the, the 3d, uh, benefits of it. So, but the flip side of that is you get longer flight times cause you're not longer flight times. You get more 
area that you can cover because you're not doubling up. Right, yeah. Or quadrupling up because you're already kind of having to double up. Right, it doesn't work uh, if you're not doubling a little. Right. And there's other things to take into account of what altitude are you flying at. Mm -hmm. Because when you fly at a lower altitude, you're going to get a better ground resolution. But your field of view is smaller. Yeah. Right, so you got to make more passes. So there's a balance of how accurate do I want my resolution on the ground to be versus how much fly time do I have and how much, you know, ground do I want to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think I was flying at 200 feet um, and okay. just doing the up-downs, the, the one pass and running, um, and I was able to get the 83 acres. Right. It was now when it came back, it was giving me a low battery warning, but it made it back. Um, and then the software that I'm using, like, I, as fun as that is, a cool, like, I enjoy seeing it do its thing and working with it doing, but I'm not the one flying it in that right. situation. It, it's mostly autonomous doing that. It's, That's what it, you're it's completely autonomous at that point. I yeah. load up the flight plan. Yeah, I, I connect my phone to the transmitter and there's software on it to to uh there's an app to communicate with the transmitter so I can get the live camera feed from okay. the, from the quad to my phone. But also uh say here here's my area that I'm at, I want to fly this mission, or I can create the mission before I go out and say here's mm-hmm. the mission I, I know I want to fly go out there, finish up some last-minute, you know, details. If I say I need to change something before I go, set it on the ground and, you know, let her rip. (laughs) Um, It's a different experience from a racing quad. It's, yeah. I mean, Um, it's different in in its general nature, though you can just say, hey, uh, go, you know, auto level, we'll we'll stitch up into the air, and if you found the balance, you could probably just chill for a minute. But not long. It's yeah. So it doesn't have altitude. Kinda, they don't have altitude hold typically. Yeah, this one has GPS altitude and all that holding, um, mm-hmm. and it'll it'll sit there and hover, you know, within a couple foot area, up and down, okay. left, right. But there's different modes I can put it in, from a GPS lock to special functionality flying, where like forwards forward but then maybe i'm the center point so anything away from me is forward anything towards yep. me is back so right you know left is always left to me right's always right to me regardless of the orientation of the drone so there's right. all kinds yeah, of yeah, stuff yeah. that there's... can be done mm-hmm. um yeah and that's so really yeah, helpful for people who don't really want to learn i'll call it the the details of rc flying right i can i can see that you know, where you're like, I don't, um, I don't want to know. Look, I, I want to go that way. So I'm going to press the thing that <laughs> way and it goes that way because I put it in the right mode yeah. and that's all I want to know. And I want to know My, that when I'm, when I'm, I've pushed it too far, it'll come back. I don't want it to fall out of the sky. <laughs> and yeah, and my, those my are the only argument. Go ahead. No, you're good. My, my only argument to that point would be if <sighs> knew this quad is expensive. Um, oh, yeah. Even used, it had a healthy price tag to it. And given what it does, its price point and all, this is not one that... This is one I think you should learn to fly regardless. Like, this... like I, I, I don't think you want to have something like this and use the crutch of GPS flight. Right. If something does go wrong, not that you can do a whole lot of, about it when you're on the other side of an 83-acre farm, 
But if you can, you want to be able to kind of get it back to you if, mm-hmm. if it's possible. And if you don't know how to fly at all, you are definitely hosed. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the end of that one. <laughs> um, well, you know, prime and- example. Uh, I was I was uh, doing a flight out at uh, some some property my neighbor uh, has, and I set mm-hmm. the drone down and didn't pay. I was kind of aware of what was above me, um, but I was kind of hoping I could give some left or right input on the stick when it went up. And turns out I could not, mm-hmm. and I was set up almost directly under a power line. Oh um, yeah, but it it missed it on the way up. Uh, and then it, it flew its mission autonomously and then it came back. Right. And the whole time I'm thinking, how am I going to, like, what am I going to do if this thing tries to set down on the power line? Cause it's return to home is only so accurate. Um, and so it, it was coming in. It looked like it was going to try to set down right on the power line. And I managed to realize I could probably throw the switch, uh, that changes its flight mode. Okay. Uh, from, special function to GPS because it's got to be in the special function mode for the app to take over the flying. I flipped it. I had full control. And then, you know, from there was able to bring it down. So yeah, you're right. It's still important to know how to fly these things. Yeah. It's just not as, not as, um, critical to initial success in that craft as opposed to the other, some of the other, um, quadcopters. Yeah. Well, in that case, just that's you know that's what you're keep, in for when you started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. In, in that case, keep it keep it close until you're confident. Exactly. Uh, that's what I've been trying. So, uh, question for you then: What tools okay. are you using to take these images? Do they come back and like it's easy to just sort of go? Like, does the thing already have a stitch me option, and it just sort of starts putting it together? Do you have to download stuff? And what have you uh, been using so far that you've had success oh. with? Or even if you haven't so, had success. <laughs> yeah, Would you so try? Um, it they come out they come out of the camera as a JPEG right now. Um, that I okay little micro SD plugs into the camera and I pull it out and stick it in my laptop. So they they offload as JPEG. From there, um, I've got free trials going on with a couple different platforms that will handle the processing of it. So like. Uh, drone deploy is the one that I'm using that has the image processing, and that's also what I'm using to plan my flights and missions. Um, but my free trial is about to run out on that. But okay. I was also processing on my computer uh, with something called Open Open Drone Map ODM. Okay. Okay. Um, so because it's open software, it is free to use, and the idea that if you have ways to contribute and make it better. Uh, with any luck, you'll you'll help them do that, even if it's just right. testing it. Well, and just open, you know, open stuff in general. Yeah, all, um, yeah. The desire to have stuff openly available. It's not a lot of times open source stuff is perhaps not as polished okay. and nice and well rounded as paid stuff. Now, there's plenty of software that's open source that'll debunk that statement. Right. Um, but I'm using ODM, Open Drone Map, which was interesting to set up and is interesting to use. And by interesting, you mean resource hog? It wasn't simple. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I had to get a Docker application, which is um, basically a virtual machine uh, 
program, so it, it fires up small individual mach- uh, small virtual machines on command for the instanced task you're trying to run. Um, so it uh, there's that, and it takes it can take a long time. It is a lot of processing power and a lot of memory mainly. Yeah, yeah I noticed uh, uh, last time when, you know when you gave it that first go uh, or something like it, it, it took a while. But I mean, it's chugging through so much data. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I mean, you figure it's breaking down and looking at every pixel from a four four K camera, and I'm pushing over three hundred images through it. Like, right, and and it's trying a to, lot of data. Trying to overlap them and make them one seamless thing, and mm-hmm. and compare them so that you can get elevation data. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty pretty incredible, Which, honestly. Yeah, it's is nuts. I props to the guys that can program that kind of stuff. So, um, that's uh, that's about it as far as flying because I've had several flights with that. I, I mean, well, so I, I've flown it's the clear. property out there at my cousin's place. I okay. flew around my parents' place. I flew my neighbor's, uh, you know, forty-five acres, and I flew around my place doing all that mapping. Okay. I mean, it's obvious that, you know, you spend a lot of your time learning what's available, what's possible, what you want to try, uh, and then with all that, getting it so you can try it. That That's, it sounded like two full weeks to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of listening, a lot of, a lot of listening and a lot of reading. I bet. Um, but I got one more thing before I hand it off to you. Okay. Um, and see what you've been up to. I did, I did something for us for the podcast today. Oh, oh what did we do? Um, what did you do? What, what did, what did we do? What did we do is, uh, we got a Patreon going. Oh, what? Yes. Oh so, man, we need to mark the day. <laughs> so you and I kind of talked about it a little bit. And, we did. Um, there's no expectations, Mm-mm. none of that, just. You know, we've been doing this for two years. We've never really talked about talked about it a whole lot. Not that anybody's reached out. We're just going to have the option available there mm-hmm. uh, for anybody that wants to uh, become a patron. There's no extra benefits at the time for it. Um, mm-hmm. Matthew and I don't really want to keep anything behind a paywall. Uh, but if you would like to contribute, support, um, mm-hmm. you know, help keep the website up and running, yep. or uh, you know, put put a little put a little dough in the uh in the hobby fund, if you will. Yeah, and I mean, you I, can head over to www.patreon.com/slash/aviationrcnoob. Okay. We'll have that in the description. Good. That's exciting news. It is. Um, and I'll talk to you a little bit about that on sure. air, but um. Like I said, there's no expectation on that other than if somebody wants to, if one of you guys okay. want to. Right. If you look, uh, if you like, ladies. if you like what we're doing and you want to help mm-hmm. us support, um, it, you know, Joe and I are do this on a shoestring budget. We're, we're not needing a whole lot per se, but if you also want to see us do some like silly stuff, you know, that's going to require some money beyond what we normally would put into the budget. So if uh, you want to support us doing some, I'll call it meteor things. Um, you know, that's one way to do it. That's one way to help out. 
uh, we've, we've got uh, the website and we've got uh, the things we, we do um, and some of the other avenues. And those all cost a little bit. So when you help us out with Patreon, you help us cover those bills. Um, you know, and we just, you know, it just lets us know that you're, you appreciate what we're doing and, and beyond listening. And we appreciate all of it. Mm-hmm. So thank you. So if you do, again, thank you as, in advance. Yep. And again, as a final iteration, there's no expectations on any of this. We just want to put the opportunity out there awesome. if anybody wants to, uh, wants to support. Right. Oh, and that, that also goes into, we have listener mugs. Um, we do part of what, part of what this all stemmed from. We, we looked a little bit into details of, uh, how, how much mess is doing things like selling mugs and starting a Patreon to help, uh, cover, cover some of the expenses for the podcast. Like how, how much of a mess is that going to be tax wise and, you know, for the government and all that junk. And we were, we looked at it and discussed it a little bit and we decided that it wouldn't be as bad as we were worried about. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to have, uh, some mugs right now. Uh, I'll figure out some things. So be on the lookout in the next podcast for details on that. Yeah. Cause we're, we're still sitting on a few. Yep. We've got or about a half a box. A it's about 10, okay. 10, 12 of them. Um, okay. and it's basically listener mugs. It says, uh, you know, I listened to hours of this podcast and all I could get was this stupid mug mm-hmm. and stupid. And for those who don't know. Uh, every guest we've had on the show has been given a, uh, a guest mug. Mm-hmm. It says, um, I spent hours on this podcast and all I got was mugged. Yep. So that, that's just something we like to do for <laughs> those that we have on the show is to mm-hmm. send them a, a nice mug so they get to remember those times. Yep. And so that, that's another way that if you help out with Patreon, we can help continue do that uh, for guests in the future. Um, cause I know right. everyone that we've sent them to seems to really enjoy it worst get a kick out of it at best. They genuinely are excited to have it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we're, we're yeah. always excited to kind of share the love, I guess. Um, so, mm-hmm. so well, good. All right. Well, let um, me get, let me talk about what I'm doing. Right. I think, is that where yeah, we're go at? Ahead. Yeah. Dude, I, I was about to say news. enough on the, enough on that kick. <laughs> that's so exciting. That's exciting news. All right, cool. Um, what I did in the last couple of weeks was, um, it was build worry. And so it was build, build, build all day long. Uh, we also had a discord, uh, server. We, we did a build night and my camera has been a mess. So I mostly had it off, which sucks, but, um, we had a lot of people kind of sharing what they were doing and talking and it was a really good one last time. So we did, I did that as part of that. I, I did the STEM night. So I cut out. 18 planes, 18 chuck gliders. Uh, looks mm-hmm. kind of like a tiny trainer, but a, like a hair smaller. Um, and I built one to continue you know, with the demonstration. So technically, I guess I did get one plane built for Bildroy more than I thought I would. Um, but I, I usually don't call, count that. Um, I built the Easy Dusty Crop Hopper. It's basically using the Easy, um, the easy System. Where it's that uh, the freighter, where it's like the the two kind of rotating motors and the the stabilizer, and that's literally all it is. So you know, more gas makes it go up, uh, less it brings it down, and then it can go left or right with a differential. Real real quick, mm-hmm. in, in a nutshell, what mm-hmm. is the easy system? 
but well, I just I just described it. It's well, it's two okay. uh, eight twenty motors with like little two inch props that are contra rotating, so they both go different opposite directions, and they plug into a little flight board that's like two by one and a half, and it's got a stabilization system in it, and it it plugs into like this Ishin freighter. Uh, it, uh, flight test bought it and did upgrades, which it did need. Um, but it's basically like a little, uh, uh, globe master, I think. Okay. Uh, it's but like, it's like as big as a keyboard maybe. So it's like pretty, pretty tiny. Um, but it, you know, flies on a 150 milliamp battery that comes supplied. It has a little crappy transmitter that doesn't get you much, but actually it gets you out at least a football field. Cause my girlfriend had it go one direction. The wind kind of took it. And she was controlling it for a long <laughs> way. Um, so it was about 500 feet, I think. So I was quite impressed with that. But uh, the flight test ones upgraded the transmitter um, so that it would it would go further. Um, I wouldn't say it's a better quality, but it definitely has more power and it can actually hold, hold the connection better. Um, so that's mm-hmm. good. Um, that's one of the reasons why I like, and it also their system uh, is the same one. You can also hook your T16, your OpenTX transmitters, and they're four in one. There's one of the protocols in there can actually hook up to that flight board. Oh, nice. So you don't have to use a little cruddy transmitter. You can actually use your full size one and have it be just one of the things you get to link up to and send in the air. So right. uh, anyway, so that's it's yeah, little little A twenty brushed motors with tiny little things, and I think the the up all up weight was I think sixty five grams typically. Okay. Uh for the plane that, that it came with. And so what they did is they kinda of took out the guts. And they what they've done is they said, Hey, we can take you know, a quarter of a sheet of foam board and make a whole bunch of planes that are cheap, quick. You put this little system on it, it's stabilized, it's easy for kids to get into it. It doesn't take long. You can do a lot of experiments with it. And it's a great way for kids to get their minds working and get them started in aviation. It's, I say kids, but because they focus more towards STEM, that tends to be for kids. But honestly, it's great for anybody. So anyway, uh, Ishin has taken that system and put in a bunch of different types of planes. They got a Cirrus plane, they got a uh, 747, they got the Globemaster, and I think they've got a couple other ones. So a little Cessna. So it's it's a popular little thing. Um, it's not a bad investment. Just you know, if you if you dink your plane to the ground and bust it, don't cry. Just get some foam and build a different plane. Put the system right. in it. <laughs> so I uh, okay. somebody on the flight test forums had built. Like the easy version or easy size, and again, though it's probably about as big as you know the keyboard. Um, and you know, so I had a spare system kind of in one I built, and it didn't quite work so well. So I wasn't excited to get to it. Like, well, let me just use that. I'll pull that out and I'll put it in there. And they they made a skin so it looks like dusty, and so I flew it around a day. It flew great actually. Yeah. Um, I also worked on the Marabou. <clears throat> uh, I've been trying to kind of finish that up, and I, I, I had pulled my back, and sleeping has been on and off for uh, a while. 
And so uh, this whole last week, I've been awful tired. So by the time kids went to bed, it was time for sleep. Um, mm-hmm. But I've been working on getting uh, my night flying marabou ready. Um, so I've been kind of figuring out what LEDs I had, how I wanted to lay them out in the thing, how I'm going to, you know, pull them through all the stringers and how am I going to mount these things to the plane? How am I going to wire it up? And do I, do I, how far do I want to go? So, um, you know, and, uh, put in a servo, some connectors. So I'm pretty close to the point where I'm going to button this up. Um, and, and that's by buttoning it up. I'm going to take those, um, uh, what are those things? Vegetable bags that you get from the store. You cut the one end open and it's just this really thin plastic. Right. Like, okay. like a, like a 0.2 millimeter kind of plastic is like crazy thin. Um, and I'm going to, yep. I'm going to spray mount it to the formers and do a very light shrink wrap. Very light. What does it shrink when heated? It's plastic. They all do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that, some do it better. You, like cellophane, right. cellophane does it really well. Like certain ones, saran wrap, cellophane, that kind of stuff. Um, they will, they're known for doing it. They have a certain uh, capacity to do it without melting. But this bag, I'm guessing, will shrink about three seconds and then melt. <laughs> so it's got to be real careful. Um, mm. I, ultimately, you know, this is... Uh, I'm, oh, I can't show Joe, but basically I took the cellophane from uh, the wrapping section of the Dollar Tree and I spray mounted it on top of a, a 3D printed frame and used an iron... And iron that taut. That's the same idea. It just okay. uh, it's gonna. I have a feeling it'll be a tighter window because the plastic's so so thin. Um, anyway, so I did that, or I'm about to do that, and uh, I figured if it doesn't work, I'll pull it off and I'll use uh, traditional covering methods like uh, I can't think of the name of the monocoat and other name brands like that. There's about six or seven of them, you know. Um. So I've got that. Uh, I, I wanted to use it uh, on the balsa, so I didn't want to use it all up on the foam board one. Right. But uh, I don't mind. If I have to do that to give it a try, I'll do that. But that's, uh, honestly, it's sadly, but that's all I've been doing. That was it. Um, mm. I thought I'd be a heck of a lot more active. And uh, as, I, as I'm well aware and very familiar with in Bill Jewelry, uh life gets in the way by about midway. <laughs> Midway through the month, everything gets in the way, and that's it, this was no, this was no exception this month. But that's okay. It's, uh, all, right. it's all right, had, Billy. Yeah, had Th- some this fun. Is, yeah, this will be my time that I'm real busy, and you get to take a break. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, but uh, I'm still going to finish up those ones that I wanted to build and decided to punt to things like the the easy build or the walk behind glider and that kind of stuff. You know. Uh, I still have those other planes I want to finish up and get in the air. So I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And this coming month, I just won't be, <laughs> won't be under the gun. Um, yeah, but that's it. So I guess that brings us okay. to community. Did you want to tell us uh, about when the next build jewelry is going to be or the next build night? Oh, my God. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I talked about the build jewelry build night. Which was basically a couple yeah. weeks back, and we were intending. I was, I really had the best of intentions to, to build every weekend, every Friday, and just it. Life got too difficult. 
<laughs> well, to you make were that doing happen. it there for a bit. I did, yeah. And, you know, we had a couple spontaneous nights. And actually, that one spontaneous night, that went amazing. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people who were ready to build that night. Yeah. It was good. We had a guy from Africa, yeah. South Africa, uh, a guy from, I thought, England, California. Did I miss the South Africa guy? Yeah, he came on later. No, you might have been there right when he was there. Uh, I, I can't remember because you came on at the end of it, and he was there from like ten okay. o'clock on. So he was there for a while. His name is Matthew okay. as well. He's a a biker. He won oh. his competition, by the way. He was doing a bike race, and he he won. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I said, "Are you going to train?" And he's like, "I don't know. I'll probably do something like the day before." He must be pretty young. <laughs> if it's me, like, oh, you got to give me months. I need some time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I feel you. Oh, man. All right. Well, uh, okay, so build night. Um, Looks like, uh, I know you were telling me, what, March 25th? Yeah, I think that's going to um, be a good day. Yeah, I'm looking on the calendar. That is a Friday night, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, current plan, March 25th, Friday night, what, 8 to 11 Eastern time? Yep. Okay. We'll be, uh, be doing some building. Don't know what we'll be building yet, but we'll be building something. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be building some, Hey, reach out. If you've got, if you would like us to have one of these be like, Hey, we're going to build this thing together. I don't know. Bloody wonder, for example, that's an easy, simple generally easy to put together plan it's easy to print out mm-hmm. um that kind of deal i'm using that because spawns uh who routinely shows up and hangs out with us he's always pulling hey check this out <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody's like oh the bloody one i love that one i want to i want to build that one i want to build that one so and I, I know i think both of us looked at that and said yeah that'd be a good one to build yeah it's good combat plane you know that kind of thing so um, if that's something you want to do in the future or, or think we should try, uh, reach out. Give us a drop us a line, aviationrcnoob at gmail.com, and it'll reach both of us. Mm-hmm. Let us know if that's what you'd like to do. And with that, suggest a plane, although we may just pick one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> one that we both want to build, and hopefully you, you'll want to join us. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, good. And so then 25th. the uh, the Hangar RC's build off challenge, uh, the first one, sponsored by us, the Hangar RC and um, RC After Hours podcast. Uh, the originally was uh, had a due date of February fourteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, we were trying to reach out to Sam before while we were tr- getting ready to record, and we didn't hear anything until just after we finished yeah. recording. Uh, but he had he slash they. Uh, mm-hmm. That council has extended the uh, the completion date until March fifteenth, mm-hmm. the submission deadline. So, right. so you've got uh, a couple I'm, more weeks. Yeah, as of the time of this recording, uh, like ten days. Weeks. No. Yeah, we got ten, 10 days. days. It'll release on the fifth. Well, I said as of time of this recording. Okay. But you're right. From the time this goes live, you'll have 10 days. So if you're working on one and you're like, oh, man, I wish I had another week. Guess what? You do. You got one. <laughs> Go finish it up. Make <laughs> you had a whole month. You just didn't know it. Yeah, exactly. I, look, I've, I saw that some of some of the people who were putting in their best efforts, they were really close by, uh, mm-hmm. by Valentine's Day. And I'm not sure if they – I tried to post information where I saw people working on it. 
um, that it had been extended because I don't know how, you know, how well publicized it was. But I know we we did it on our server, and I went on the the flight test group and let them know. Um, just you know, because because there's some really cool builds that people were working on, so I'm excited to see what comes of this. Yeah, and I haven't seen a whole lot from our guys since the 14th. I know sort of our server in that area is gone a bit quiet. Right. Um, well, I think Richard's still still working on his. Tony okay. Tony finished his. Tony finished okay. his, and you are really close. I'm gonna push you to finish to fix up the spar. And then I'll help you work on plans if you need it. And then I'll get back. Now the build jewelry is almost over. I'll probably get back to the ones I was working on before. Okay. Well, we'll see. I won't make any promise, but uh, I'll certainly try to uh, see if there's a way to fix that fuse. I, you know what? Hang on. Let's let's talk. Let's have a topic for a second. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's talk. Hold on. Wait. Um, uh, everybody, let's just pause for a minute and let's have a side conversation. Yes, we interrupt your regularly scheduled program. Uh, foam tack. Okay. It came unglued. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know much about foam tack, except it's like rubber okay. cement. Well, that like it's either a foam it came safe un- rubber contact cement. Yeah, either it came unglued or my foam board was delaminating. Because my mm. spacers in there, they're like, the spacers are no longer sticking oh, okay. together. It is very likely. Unless you pulled the paper off the foam and then foam tacked it and pressed the pieces together, very which I was likely not the paper, right? Which is very likely the paper delaminated. Okay, almost I can guarantee, you. and it because I've noticed the last couple, I'll call it batches, last handful of months, um, the the foam foam board is more brittle, and. The, the paper comes off a little bit easier than it used to. Well, this is this is still pre-beginning uh, of pandemic foam board. It, uh, I don't know. It, it, I don't think it matters. I'm talking about like in the last like year. Uh, okay. I, even though you may have got it then, I don't know. Um, paper's always been kind of head or miss. There's sometimes I try to take the paper off and it, I'm wrestling a gorilla. And there's other times, <laughs> other times I breathe on it, it starts coming off. Yeah. Um, so that's always been hit or miss and if yours was a miss well then tough (laughs) um Mm. usually the best bet is to just kind of take some hot glue over top and and just smear it across the top and try to keep the paper but i mean if the paper got stressed from the foam it doesn't take much for it to come off well i mean the other side of that is when i glued it so i took all these spacers right they're they're not your main structural component though they're, they're no, a secondary but, piece. But I also didn't want them coming delaminated. No, of course you not. Know? Yeah. But I took them and I put the, the foam tack on them. I stacked them up and then I put a board across them and then put something of medium weight on top of that. Just to press that foam flat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want like ripply gaps in between them because I, I was kind of working in combined measurements. So. I got you. Um, I don't know if that contributed to it or because there was no like C folding yep. of yep. those spacers. If, and so they were just raw end square cuts. Right. Right. If you'd C cut, it probably would have made it better, stronger for sure, at least on the one mm-hmm. side. And then if you're doing like an accordion kind of fold, 
that would be alternating on the sides and keep the sides, uh, as it tried to stress, it would hold itself together with the paper, right? As opposed right. to like it just uh, buckles and the, the laminations come off. And for those who may not know the cuts, because I know we got a couple guys that don't mess with foam at all, uh, what we're referencing, the A and B folds is a basically which direction of the 90 degrees goes over the top of the other. A C will be a, a larger gap cut out so that the two pieces of foam mm-hmm. can 180 and face each other, and the, the paper stays intact around the outer edge. And honestly, the, the builds are almost identical to how you build with Depron. The only difference is that mm-hmm. there's a there's an exterior substrate that starts on it, and you're basically trying to make these cuts so that it stays on it as you build. And use use well, I'm that also for our balsa guys. The two, yeah, the same same idea, I guess. If you were to basically um, put the monocoat on your stuff before you put it together, <laughs> it'd be kind of mm-hmm. that's not entirely accurate though. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's it's you're folding it over and then that, that paper continuously goes around the outside edge. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah, I may have to reconsider that for yeah. I don't know future design of it. Yeah, it'd probably be worthwhile. Um, yeah, I, it's funny because yeah. I've like watched you build it, but I don't know all the details. I just heard you talk about it, and I'm imagining it in my head, and I think I know where we're at. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, we had a couple times we were supposed to be able to get together, and just it didn't work out. So yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe when you come down this weekend, uh, bring the fuse or something. I might. We'll see. Because I know that's not terribly big. No, it's not. Just I know your wife. What else we're packing? Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Wait, wait. All right. Well, we'll see. I'm looking forward to seeing you. We're doing D and D this weekend, so I'm looking forward to seeing yeah. everybody again. All right. Good. All right. Okay. So let's uh, welcome back to the podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Commercial well, breaks over. Back exactly, to it. Virtual break is over. Okay. Um, well, so then that, I guess that brings us, we're pretty much done with all the community stuff. Do you have anything else, Joe? Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I have anything right this second. Other than, um, feel free to write in and give us topics to, uh, to talk about. Ask us yeah. questions. Cause, uh, yeah, anything. you know, Matt, Matt's been pretty good about keeping, uh, keeping topics coming, but yeah, I've, I'm sure he's going to run dry at some point. I've got a general direction for this year and a set of series of topics and potential guests um, as we delve into our new, our, this is the new part where we start going down our new avenues. Mm-hmm. One of them being uh, sailplanes, balsa, and quadcopters. So you'll be seeing a lot yeah, more of that. I, but, we, you know, we love airplanes, so we'll be flying those too. I guess it is timely that, that that I picked up the quad when I did. It is. I, I, don't I didn't th- even I know think you, about it. No, you didn't. <laughs> That's okay. That, I was like, <laughs> nice. This is going to work out great. <laughs> yep, yep. I'll do the quad thing. You do the balsa thing for well, a bit. Uh, well, that's the other thing is I've been uh, I've been doing the freestyle stuff. I'll call it freestyle. But basically, I've been pulling that little quad that's the freestyle quad and starting to fly that and get a little bit more familiar with me and we'll run it around a yard and do some flips and rolls and and get better mm. with some of the that kind of stuff and and look at because that's something I've been wanting to do for a while and I feel like I finally have 
a couple quads I can reliably just go and take it to lunch. So I'm excited for that. And so that's going to be the other half of it, right? Uh, also, all the LRS stuff that I, I picked up is in. So now I'm going to go through the, uh, we talked about how I can take the 900 megahertz system from the R9M. What is it? The Sky, the Sky Zone stuff? Yeah, mm. no, FR Sky. Sorry, the Free Sky uh, R, R9M module and then change that over to be Express LRS transmitter module. So I'm going to do that because I have a, a couple of receiver units. Okay. Um, okay. So let's talk about what our his, our mystery history plane is. Oh, I like that. Mystery history. Yeah. <laughs> well, every time you come on, I'm like, what are we doing? You're like, I'll tell you when we get there. I'm like, what? <laughs> mystery to me too. Yeah, that's because I uh, started working on this about uh, an hour and a half ago. Um, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> this is how we've been recording for an hour now. It gives you an idea. Um, so we're going to talk about the Fair Child Republic A-10 Thunderbolt 2. Wait, A-10. That's the A-10? A-10 Warthog. You mean it's the Warthog? Yep. It's the Warthog. Yep. Nice. Um, also known as the Tank Buster. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is very it iconic craft for those uh, familiar with the United States Air Force, mm -hmm. um, and even even in the 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 uh, theaters it served in, mm -hmm. uh, well known. I'm not sure how well known it would be in other areas of the world. That's um, an iconic gun mounted on the front of it. I'm pretty sure anybody who's ever seen or heard that knows this weapon, knows this uh, airplane. But we'll get into yeah. that in a minute. And if there was a uh, sound to describe this plane, it would be burp. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Um, yeah, and I get to hear them pretty regular because there's a, a fire in range. I I feel like it's the A-10s. It could be the 16s uh, doing their things because I, I never get to see the 10s. Uh, so it could just be the 16s, but it, it sounds like the 10s. Okay. So. I got to uh, actually got to see uh, an A10 doing strafing runs on a uh, on a practice location back when I was in high school. Our uh, ROTC unit went out to the firing range okay. uh, that they use, and an A10 came in and would uh, was doing some runs, and that was weird. To um, you kind of heard a couple different, or you you saw and heard a couple different things. He would do his run, you would see the ground over where he was shooting, just mm -hmm. start boiling. Just <laughs> And then you hear the, the pop, 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 pop. Oh, of, of the bullets, and you're like, oh, that's where he's shooting. But that was the the sonic booms of the of the bullets going past. And mm -hmm. then you heard the of it actually firing. Wow. So a couple, couple things to that process. It, it is, but it, if you've ever heard it or seen it, you just go, what? Um, yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty pretty special. I'm sharing a couple pictures of my memories, which are GI Joe. Uh, <laughs> had a plane called the Rattler or the Tiger Rat um, that was modeled after the A10. Yeah, it was looking at it. <laughs> yeah, it just had a motor. That was a souped up A10. Yeah. So why and is it called the Tank Buster? Well, uh, it was it was really good at taking out the tanks. Well, okay. So um, how about this? What first? What is its role? 
Is that okay. what it was designed well, I, for? You're, you're just throwing me off of these pictures. I want to say... <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Cool Cool though those pictures are... They're not uh, the same. The The design of them, unfortunately, negates some of the benefits of the <laughs> yeah. original design of the A-10. It's a toy. And I'll, I'll get into some of that. The G.I. Joe so, stuff, it's a toy. It's, it's not supposed I to be know, accurate. I know. So, <laughs> getting into it, uh, the purpose Let's of it. it, and I'm just going to read this quote because I couldn't think of a better way to, to summarize it or paraphrase or rewrite it. Uh, it was the first Air, Fo- the first Air Force aircraft uh, specifically designed for close air support of ground forces. That's from www.af.mil. Um, and there, I was surprised at how hard it is to find uh, written information on the A-10, mm-hmm. uh, at least in the quick bit that I was looking for. So I've, I've got plenty of information, but some things I want to talk about is me pulling from my memory of what I uh, remember knowing about it. So, uh, yes, the, the Warthog, the A-10, it was brought about because of a need after World War II uh, for going into the Cold War uh, for being able to handle ground targets. During World War II, I'm not going to remember the plane, uh, I was just listening to something while I was working on my wife's car before we got going, uh, the Germans had a plane that they used to good effect on ground targets and it was a dive bomber of sorts mm-hmm. um i cannot for the life of me remember uh, but i think we even talked about uh, it and that, that plane was hauling it like 400 miles an hour by the time it came to the ground <laughs> that could have been the one uh the, uh the one that they were talking about in the video i was listening to they strapped a uh an air siren to it i think <laughs> yeah to make uh, it more terrifying <laughs> Yeah, like listening to it, just listening to it, I'm like, man, I can't imagine being out on the field right. and hearing that coming at me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, that plane in certain theaters, there were more, uh, more of those planes went down due to impacting the ground than it did uh, actually getting shot down by AA. Geez. It's just, you know, they, they just misjudged when they had to pull up, I guess. Well. Anyway, go ahead. I didn't feel it. No, anyway, let's um, get back to the A-10. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and we'll kind of get into a lot of mm-hmm. it. Uh, the, so at the time, uh, as I understand, like Russia had like, ground superiority in the armored vehicle department. Um, a lot of tanks, a lot of armored tanks, um, tough to penetrate, especially with ground stuff. You know, if you hit them with artillery, but, you know, you're trying – Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the Air Force wanted a craft that could, uh, provide support to the ground troops, handle firing on tanks, destroy tanks, destroyed armored vehicles, uh, get in and basically get dirty, um, mm-hmm. get in and make it out. Low and slow. Right. Uh, and as far as low and slow, um, I can give you a couple stats here. Its maximum speed was 439 miles an hour or 706 kilometers an hour at sea level. Uh, it's, a, it's cruise. It sorry, go ahead. It booked. It was moving. It could. It could. Uh, its cruise speed was 340 mile an hour or 560 kilometers an hour. And its stall speed uh, was 138 miles an hour, uh, 220 kilometers per hour. So 
it could really, uh, it could really slow down and, you know, fly slow, uh, to do what it needed to do. Mm-hmm. It, it had real great, uh, roll authority. So it could roll, it could bank because it flew slowly. Like it could really slow down. It had very tight turn radiuses where, uh, the more traditional fighter craft that flew faster, uh, couldn't come around near as fast as this plane could, mm-hmm. uh, and still can. Um, I say still can because they're still in use. Uh, they entered the service in 1976. Um, they were in production from 1972 to 1984. So these airplanes, uh, depending on when they were made, are hitting that 50-year-old mark at this point. Right. And with the last ones being produced in 1984, they're not produced anymore. Now, are they still producing parts? I'm not sure. Or are they just salvaging off of each other? Um, mm-hmm. but there's no new ones rolling out. If you see an A-10, it's, it's at least 40 years old. It's at least five years old. Yeah. Um, and looks like as far as I saw, there's, there was only a hundred, uh, 716 of them built. Yeah. Not that many. Surprising. Yeah. For how, how iconic they were. Um, but not many of them really went down. Like there've been ones that went down. Um, but they had a very high success rate and they were designed to not, uh, to not be taken down, at least not easily. Okay. And I'll talk about that uh, a little more further on, uh, get into some details about it. It was a, it was a one man crew. Uh, so just the pilot, um, they sat in a, uh, bubble cockpit. Uh, so they were kind of up on top of the plane, nice mm-hmm. bubble canopy all around. So they had great vision. Uh, all around them. Uh, length of the plane was 53 foot. Wingspan was 57 foot. That's actually pretty uh, odd. It is. It sort of makes it stocky looking. Right. Yeah, and it's a... The wing is actually mounted more like mid... Mid-fuse, which is... I, know it doesn't, I'm, I mean, like, front-to-back mid-fuse. Usually, you know, planes kind of have, like, the wings are near the front-ish, and that's partly because the engines are typically in the front. Um, mm-hmm. and usually the length of a plane is about two thirds of the wingspan. Yeah. And it's uh, looking at the three view, the wings are pretty much center of the center of front back. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's weird looking in that way. Um, but there's a couple of things that go into that. Your, your engines were back mounted but your gun was front mounted which a lot were but this we'll talk about this is a big old gun so <laughs> um, gun. between the all the weight of the cockpit and its armor and the gun and its ammo front mounted and then the motors in the back uh it all obviously balanced out because it flew mm-hmm. um and it was 15 foot high okay um empty weight was twenty five thousand pounds uh bit more than 11,000 kilograms. Mm-hmm. Its gross weight, which I think was fueled up, uh, mm-hmm. was... Mm, no, that's not quite right, because it can hold a lot of, fuel, a lot of fuel. Anyway, uh, gross weight was 30,000 pounds, almost 14,000 kilograms. Its maximum takeoff weight, uh, I've seen two numbers. One was 50,000 pounds, and one was 51,000 pounds. Yeah. Either way, it can hold a good bit of stuff. 
Yeah, that, um, that's a significant payload. And if you look at the wings on this, there's nothing but hard mounts from almost wingtip yeah. to wingtip is what it looks like. I'm, I'm exaggerating <laughs> a little bit because it doesn't go to the wingtips. But it, there are hard mount points on this thing. I think there's five on each wing. That's a lot. Uh, close. Close. Okay. Um, so, I'll, well, tell me more. We can talk about that. <laughs> tell me more. Um, yeah, we'll talk about hard points in a minute. Okay. Uh, so power plant's got the two General Electric TF, that's Tango Fox 34-GE Golf Echo, uh, dash 100A. That might have been a 10A that I carried too many zeros on. Anyway, they were turbo fans. Um, so these aren't the, the jet engines that we would normally think of. Um, they're, they're a little different. And each of these were producing... A little over 9,000 pounds of thrust or uh, 40.32 kilonewtons of thrust each. So um, um, so you're so looking of, at like empty weight, it's almost a one-to-one, but it's uh, thrust to, to weight, is it, so it's a one-to-two or one-to-two-and-a-half. Yeah, it's a uh, it's thrust to weight ratio. I guess assuming fully loaded was point three six. Yeah. Okay. So that's uh, um, that's yeah that's not that's not typical. I don't think. That's is it? What is it normally higher? Well, lower? yeah. Well, normally it's closer to like a a one and a half to one. Like you you have like a I guess your weight is is one and a half times your thrust. Unlike a normal plane, full size. Maybe I have that wrong. Maybe I have that wrong. But either way, uh, it just seems low, which, uh, I don't know, it just means that that thing has a lot of lifting surface. It does. So the the wings generate a lot of lift, a mixture of their their shape, uh, their slight, do they call it over-cambered? Anyway, there's things going on with the wing that cause it to generate a lot of lift. Uh, It's probably Uh, under-cambered where there's like a hollow underneath. Yeah, but I thought they were saying over cambered, so okay. I don't know. All right. well, um, keep going. That, that's going. me pulling from something I heard in the video that I was watching. Okay. Um, let's see. We talked about his max cruise and stall speeds. Its combat range uh, was. I want to read this off, then we'll kind of uh, theorize about the 250 miles or 400 kilometers close air support mission, 1.88 loiter time. Uh, at 5,000 feet or 1,500 meters, 10 minutes of combat. So my assumption is that's all-inclusive of that, that it had mm-hmm. 250-mile uh, range to fly out, come back, hang out at the combat site for almost two hours, and have 10 minutes of combat, all on one fueling. Yeah. Is my assumption on how that's laid out. That's what it sounds like um, to me, too. And that loiter time, that was important uh, because it they wanted the planes to be able to be in the area uh, to provide support. And so the longer you could be in a loiter position, uh, just hanging out, the longer they had that they could have you on hand if they needed you. Okay. Um, service ceiling is 45,000 feet or 13,700 meters, and rate of climb was... 6,000 feet a minute, or 30 meters per second. The gun 
Uh, it had one gun. It's a 30 millimeter, uh, GAU. That's Golf Alpha Uniform Dash 8 Alpha Avenger Rotary Cannon with 1,174 rounds that it had, it carried with it. Wow. I feel like that number's low. You know, I don't know. Nope. I have I have nothing to judge against it. Um, how many rounds? Eleven hundred and seventy-four. Now I'm double checking the okay. page. That's what it says. So unless there's a mistype, yeah, I just felt like it would have carried more bullets. <laughs> but yeah. let's talk about the bullets that's firing. Thirty millimeter. If you look, if you look back on the like the Spitfire and things like that, they only had like two hundred or two hundred fifty yeah. rounds. Yeah, you know, they I didn't just know the carry a ton. I know the rate that this gun fired at. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> like that's not a lot of fire. How, how how many runs does it fire per minute? Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it the the early models had a uh, a mode switch where they could fire either 2,400 rounds a minute, or they could switch it in high gear and get 4,800 rounds a minute. Uh, okay. And then later it was locked, I think, to 3,900 rounds. Yeah, that, that's what this uh, military site is is indicating as yeah. well, the 3,900. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they like, okay, yeah, that's too much. <laughs> and, and it was probably because it, it would overheat the barrels and it would cause mechanical issues. Uh, maybe. And I wish I had more details on the gun because I've, I've watched videos just on that. But like on the 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 gun and the things that had to go into uh, into consideration on mm-hmm. when they put that gun on the plane. Like I, I really wish I could do this plane better justice, but you could also talk about this plane for hours. I know, right? Um, well, I mean, look, this is really for uh, any any RC builder who's interested in this plane to to get interested to go look and find out more information. Hmm. So it's okay if we don't have all the details. Well, that 1174 rounds was heavy regardless because those are 30 millimeter uh, shells. Yeah. That gun, the gun fired depleted uranium armor piercing shells. Oh my God. Well, it was a tank buster, right? So it had to bust through some serious armor. Yeah, it did. Um, And, you know, that's what we use depleted uranium for. So. Uh, it got the job done. Um, it's a hydraulically driven seven barrel rotary cannon. Uh, so you got this big circle cannon hanging out the front and it just spins up and bada bada bada. Um, hard points. Well, we can talk about that gun for a second longer. The, <laughs> it, you were bringing it up before the show. Yeah, um, sorry about that. Yeah. yeah, I do remember seeing it somewhere. We, like, part of the reason for those two motors, uh, I, I assume was to be able to keep the plane in the air. Uh, to recover quickly when they would fire because that's that much force would actually slow the plane down when they were firing. Right, and if they're coming in low and slow near the stall speed, and then they go, and all of a sudden it goes way below the stall speed. Now you got a problem. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, you, you do. You have to be real careful when and how you fire that thing because that's one of the things they were. Uh, a friend of mine said that he watched the testing, and talked to people who did. They had to watch that they weren't going too slow. They had to go fast enough because otherwise it would slow them too much and it would be mm-hmm. a problem. <laughs> Knock them right out of the air. Yeah. Um, and like I said, there's so much information. If I remember it correctly, uh, 
that went into the gun. Like the the gun, I think was all like armor plated around it, protected. That's sort of like its main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, do do some looking. I, I wish I could do it better, but. It has uh, 11 other hard points. Eight are under the wings, so four under each wing. And then three are under the fuse uh, for a capacity of 16,000 pounds, or 7,260 kilograms. Um, and it can carry rockets, missiles, bombs, etc. Mm. Um, now, I think some of those hard points is where they would uh, put in chaff and flare. Uh, yeah, um, um, that might have been actually, uh, considering where the engines are, maybe not. Um, oftentimes they'll have chaff and flare. They'll have it as uh, tubes that are underneath the plane or out on the sides. And they'll eject it backwards because you, you want it behind the plane. Because mm-hmm. um, what you're doing is I think they're like little magnesium flakes. So they're super hot. So that if it's a heat yeah. seeker, it'll go towards that. Um, but well, I don't, I don't know that much about it, but I do remember that was some, I was like, what? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what, and talk about heat seeking, um, part of the design of those motors, there was what, I guess what they call a lot of, there was a large amount of, uh, pass through. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of just other air going through the motors, which helped to keep them cooler. So it was less of a heat signature, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the motors are actually angled with uh, pointing down. The backs of the motors point down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ends up, I think, blowing some of the exhaust. Uh, either the, the, the rudders, because it's got two two rudders on the back, uh, two vertical stabs and a rudder. Those help shield uh, the vision of uh, thermal if mm-hmm. the missile's coming from the side. But also, I think the way that the motors were mounted and angled, it helped, like, spread out the heat wash coming off the motors. Okay. Um, by hitting the tail section. I could be wrong on that, but I think I, I saw or heard something about that. Okay. Well, I mean, it's something um, to that effect where they, they use the geometry of, of the tail of the plane to help assist in uh, reducing, I guess, the heat signature. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, the motors were high mounted the way they are, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, these, one of the benefits of these planes is they could be used in, uh, forward operating, uh, situations. So they didn't have to have a dedicated airfield or a nice airfield. Uh, mm-hmm. a field strip could be made that they could land on. I think 1500 feet was all they needed. Oh, wow. That's not um, much at all. No, it's really not. And they could, Land, turn around, uh, they could be rearmed and refueled, I believe, while the engines were still running. Like, there wasn't any danger to the ground crew moving around mm-hmm. it, where there was less danger to the ground crew. So the engines didn't have to be shut off, which meant they didn't have to be fired back up to get back in the air. Right, I'm just trying to think, the um, plane is 15 feet high. Those motors are probably about a good 10 or 11 feet, which means the bottom of those are clear to about, like, 6 feet, 7 feet. Yeah. And it also helped with with a being higher mounted like that, of not like catching crap off, catching the, fire the to the runway. Bad. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> they're landing on makeshift, you know, quick cut, whatever. So, right. Um, they're not they're not so worried about sucking stuff up as are as are landing or taking off. Right. Right. Um. So yeah, 
Uh, first, we'll get into my factoid segment. Joe's factoids. First used in combat during the Gulf War in 1991. So they had been around, mm-hmm. uh, but they never they were around for the Russian Cold War threat, but they never really got they never got to be used. Mm-hmm. Now they they were tested. They were kind of put to the test. Uh, I think during the Cold War, towards the end of it, uh, I heard this in the video I was listening to. Apparently, uh, the government, the Air Force, somebody from around the world quietly bought up like 600 old Russian tanks. Okay. And took them out to a field somewhere out west in the U.S. And I was only partway listening but to this point, but had the A-10s go hog wild on them. They just see um, how they perform. Just see what they could do. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, that's what they were expecting to fight. And then, uh, so they never got brought to bear on that. Uh, and so I guess the Air Force was actually looking at decommissioning them uh, yeah, prior they, to they pretty much to the Gulf War. Yeah, they pretty much had their whole service life where they weren't being uh, utilized, I guess. They weren't, weren't mm-hmm. being put in a service, active service. Um, right. So well, what do you do with it? And at that point, that's where Congress says, well, you need to get rid of those things. It cost us money. Which they are. Well, and they, they are, but they were also uh, compared to other planes and yeah, like I said, you could dive deep. Yeah. Uh, they were not expensive, compare comparatively to other planes. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. they got uh, brought into combat during the first Gulf War in 1991, during which uh, they the A-10s destroyed more than 900 Iraqi tanks, 2,000 other military ve- uh, vehicles, and 1,200 artillery pieces. And they also managed to shoot down two uh, Iraqi helicopters in air-to-air combat. <laughs> All right. Wow. Um, many of the parts are interchangeable between the left side and the right side of the planes, uh, which makes, uh, I guess, inventory on hand le- uh, smaller because you don't have to have a left side piece and a right side piece for it. It's just... Do I have this part? Mm-hmm, right. Um, and then when you're, say, you got a badly damaged one or two badly damaged ones, and you got to have one, you know, you can you can field strip the one and use it to, to get the other one back up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, landing gear. The landing gear uh, partially protruded from the uh, nacelles mm-hmm. uh, under the wings when they retracted. Now, I'm not so sure about the nose gear. I think it went all the way up. It looks the, like it goes all the way gear. in, but the wings are, are partially out. Right. So the mm-hmm. wing gear, the, the wheels are still exposed and can be used, and they sit low enough down, uh, maybe if all your rocket hard points are fired off, uh, that you could use them. They were still useful in a belly landing. <clears throat> so the plane could be still be more easily controlled on a belly land and help to reduce damage to the plane. Um, All landing gear were forward retracting, meaning they swung forward when retracting. Okay. Uh, And this meant that in the event of hydraulic failure, uh, a mixture of gravity and aerodynamic drag could fully deploy and lock the landing gear down. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a big help. Um. We'll talk about the hydraulic system in a minute, but the chances of the hydraulic system going out completely was small. Sure. Uh, not to say it didn't happen. Um, 
the we'll talk about the cockpit a bit uh in a minute but the plane itself um was able to survive direct hits from armor piercing and high explosive maybe this is cockpit information but able to survive direct hits from armor piercing and high explosive projectiles up to 23 millimeters what um the redundant hydraulic flight systems uh with mechanical backup so there were two hydraulic systems in the plane, each powered independently uh, by each of the motors. So one hydraulic okay. system was run off one motor, the other was run off the other motor. Right, and if there's a and, failure in one half, you could probably shunt it to the other. Well, you, yeah, but you didn't necessarily... I don't know how the, the, the switching occurred, but all critical systems were powered by both. Okay. So if yeah. one if one engine went out, you still had your hydraulics from the other one. Mm-hmm. If a bullet took out one of the hydraulic lines, you still had your hydraulic from the uh, the hydraulic power from the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, you were just taken care of in that regard. Um, so with a double system, you were far less likely to to lose your hydraulic power, which drove a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, including your gun. But uh, in the event that both hydraulic systems were taken out, it would then switch over to mechanical control. You still crank uh, that son of a gun down there. <laughs> right. And it was still flyable. It was it was harder, uh, but it was still like the, the the inputs became more difficult. Right, of course. Uh but it could still be flown. I think uh one pilot uh I think it was a lady had both her hydraulic systems shot out. Okay. Uh, and the plane was really beat up, and she had to make an hour flight back to land on mechanical power. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, that that in itself just the the engineering that went into having that redundant hydraulic system, um, yeah. and then the cockpit. So that somebody expected thing, these things to see some serious stuff, <laughs> and we're like, no, we need to have our pilots come back. And the yeah, plane, like the. <sighs> These planes were all about getting down in the dirty of it. Yeah, right. Um, and and they did. the The cockpit is protected by it says twelve hundred pounds of uh, titanium armor that was aircraft grade. Uh, it was tested to withstand hits from twenty three millimeter cannons and indirect hits uh, from fifty seven millimeter shell fragments. Uh, wow. So. It, it could take a beating, and the the front windshield and canopy were resistant to small arms fire. So even when they were making Shoot. their runs, you know they they had uh, planes. I think during Vietnam uh, that were getting shot up by small arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so they wanted this one to be able to to withstand it, and yep. it did. And wow. even the cockpit glass was able to keep the the pilot fairly safe. And thank you, Matthew. He's highlighting a, a line that I missed. Um, well, that's pretty awesome right there. I mean, I think a lot of planes kind of are able to do some of that because, I mean, we've seen with RC airplanes, you know, oh, shoot, the, the one the one the control service isn't working right. You're like, ah, we'll, we'll make it back. <laughs> you know, Yeah, but the degree always. to which this one could be yeah, beat up. Like how so? It, it could, it was designed to be able to fly with one engine, half the tail, one elevator, and half of a wing missing. What? Yeah. Wow. Half your wing's blown off. I'm still here. Right. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm not going home. You know, well, I just, might be going home, but I'm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going down. home, but I'm going to go home. <laughs> That's it. Wow. So, just an absolute beast of a plane. Um, and for the ground forces that it re- that it supported, it was, it, it was their friend in the sky. Yeah, you know that there's a there's a loving relationship that goes on between, even though they don't know, you know, like the pilot may not know the ground units, but they see the ground units see that that A ten, they hear it, they watch it do it. So like, mm-hmm. there's a there's a you know relationship there. Yeah, um, you know they they I mean, love seeing it in. It's a it's a confidence boost. They know, hey, there's somebody in the air that can really. Uh, that can really support us because they're not flying so fast and whipping around that they can't help us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the stats I saw and I didn't include it here was that this plane uh, could it had what eighty percent accuracy. It keep eighty percent of its of its shots within a forty foot diameter circle from fifteen hundred feet in the air. I think you had said that, yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's just, got an immense range of accuracy. Yeah, and just tight. Tight yeah. accuracy because of how the gun's mounted, where it's mounted, center line, mm-hmm. what it does. And just, it's, if you've ever gotten a chance to see one flying in person, like those things will get going. If I recall right, I was looking at some of the other stuff, paging through, trying to look at some pictures. I tried to add some because I think it helps describe, uh, at some point or another, maybe we'll be releasing the, the show notes to Patreons or something like that, or, or just have it available for people. Um, you'll see some of the pictures we use to kind of treat ourselves to while we do these things. Um, mm-hmm. But while I was looking, I, I noticed that it also was one of the earlier adopters of night vision uh, for the yes. pilot, which makes it extra dangerous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> considering what it can already do uh, when it's daylight. Yeah, it's it is a force, um, and the current plan uh, is for these to continue service uh, through at least twenty twenty five, and then you were telling me they're working on a an updated model, a, a whole new line of them. Well, I just happened to look at you, you know how you you put in the A ten Warthog or A ten, and it pops up, and mm-hmm. there's like a a new sleek looking A ten. You know, it's like oh look at that, it's the next gen, oh next gen A ten. Uh, and has some of the similar iconic pieces, I guess we'll call it, uh, that say, yeah, that that still looks like an A-10. It still looks dangerous. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to see if I can find the picture again. Uh, anyway, I shared it with you. Um, but, yeah, and I, I think, you know, it's one of those planes that I think, especially, you know, especially speaking of what's been going on in the world today, um, Russia still has a really strong... Uh, ground force, right? Um, they have mm-hmm. a very dangerous and present uh, ground force with tanks and, and a lot of armored units and stuff. So uh, planes that are very similar to this or this kind of function, I don't know if this is necessarily the, you know, what we need at the minute, but this is that kind of plane that's useful in that theater. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't speak to it terribly well. I'm not a military expert, but um, anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just well, I'm looking to see, but, but it looks like it's it's almost like a mix between um, a fighter jet and the A-10. If you were to like extend the the motor nacelles, you know, forward, 
so they kind of snug up against the fuse as they attach to the wing. Like that's what the uh, new one kind of looks like. Huh. Anyway, I don't I well, don't know any more details about it, but it's worth checking out because an RC plane of that would be cool either way. <laughs> well, that is the uh that's our history segment. Nice. And that is just really truly scraping the surface of this plane. I, um yeah. If you enjoyed that, go look it up. There there's videos. You may have to do a bit of digging, but there's there's videos on it that'll just you can listen to and watch some of the stuff. It's read up on it. It's it's a really fascinating plane. Yeah. Um, and there's some really great pictures of it too. Yeah, and I can remember like listening to it a while back is where I'm pulling some of this stuff from, you know, as memory, but it's just it's a you know, get in there and brawl plane, which we don't so much think of. So. No. A lot of things are more high tech at this point, but but yeah. Well so anyway, cool. Thank you. That's that was a good yeah. go through on that one. That's a good plane to pick. Nice. Yeah, we've uh we've almost got a whole episode right here. We still gotta talk about LEDs. I know, right? Hey, um the Vietnam War ended in nineteen seventy five officially. Um, and that is pretty close to when this plane, so they were looking at the tail end of that. And if it continued further, I think they were looking, we're going to need this kind of plane, um, Mm. to support what we're doing there. Um, and also it was the beginning, like you said, of the cold war. Um, and who knows what that was going to be like. Right. Um, but that's kind of the, the setting for saying, Hey, we, we need one of these. (laughs) (laughs) Make us one of these things, please. Yeah. Cool. Hey, I forgot to ask who who's a maker? Who who you said it, I know, but I can't remember who it was. Uh Fairchild Republic. Uh, Fairchild Republic. That's not a plane manufacturer that you hear often about. No. I I hadn't heard of it before I went and started looking at this. Interesting. I wonder if they couldn't tell you anything about them. I, I bet you if we if we run out of planes, nine we won't. But if we ever run out of planes, we can always just talk about like the companies themselves. <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting uh, companies that came up and, and went, you know, tried tried their hand at it and, you know, come up with some pretty interesting planes. Mm. Pretty interesting aircraft. Okay, well, cool. Well, I guess let's switch gears to the other half of uh, the other half of the podcast, I think we'll call it. Um, and that's going to be doing the Night Flying Part 2, which is uh, about LEDs. Um, what you need to know to, like, select the right stuff to light your plane. Uh, we talked hey, about Matt? yeah. What do I need to know to light my plane? You need electricity, prim- oh, primarily. Okay. But the good news is you need it for your motor anyway, or at least your receiver. And you can use that. Right. You can use that same uh, battery system, um, because LED lights. One of the nice things is that they don't use a lot of current. So as long as you've got the right voltage. Uh, most of any battery we put in the plane will be able to power LEDs for a long time. Uh, a long time. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> a long. Um, yeah. So with that being said, um, with a power source on board to be able to light a plane fairly easily, you know, what you got to do is then just see like, well, what's out there? And then think about how you, how visible do you want it to be? How far away are you going to be flying? And that kind of stuff. We talked about the limitations and requirements and needs of regulatory agencies and kind of what you want to be looking for. Um, and the primary point of lights on your plane 
it's for orientation and being able to actually fly your plane while it's completely pitch black and you may or may not be able to see the, the ground. Um, so you kind of want to think about all those things about how you are going to fly at night and design your lighting system for it. So um, light, light LEDs, and I'm going to say LEDs because we, you know, we could pick incandescent bulbs, I guess, like the kind of bulb that goes underneath your microwave or in your nightlight or something. Um, right. But those tend to take a lot more, uh, a lot more volts and a lot more energy, and they just aren't as versatile. Um, LEDs are a heck of a lot smaller. They weigh, way they weigh a lot lighter. Um, they use less energy and they are incredibly bright. Plus you can color, you can choose whatever color you want pretty close. Um, so they're probably your, almost everybody's go-to choice when lining up, um, an airplane or any, any craft that's in the sky. Uh, I know we, uh, there, a lot of people are putting out, uh, I'll call it slap on you and it's basically, um, strobing, uh, strobing little modules that you can put on your phantoms and, uh, drone, you know, are you, all your drones, I was calling them, uh, quadcopters basically so that you can fly your quadcopters at night. As they're kind of okay. gearing up. They're like little buttons. You put a crud ton of batteries in and little button batteries and you just, you know, uh, double stick tape it on with like the 3M tape. Um, Anyway, so an LED is a light-emitting diode, and a diode is basically a, a one-way gate for electricity. So it'll go one way, and when it does, it goes through this little filament. The filament then heats up and lights. Um, and it's usually encased, so it's almost basically vacuum-sealed uh, in a plastic or an epoxy. Now, is it that there's a filament heating, or is there something else going on that's causing light? Um, I think the the increased level of electricity ends up this diode, this material that's in the diode, ends up emitting light. I don't know if it actually heats up. It, it, it's not the same. It does create heat. Uh, but it's not like the same as an incandescent bulb wire that goes to like, you know, it literally is going to 5,000 degrees or like 3,000 degrees Kelvin or something like that, where it's it's actually a, a black body mass that's heating up so hot that it actually lights. It's just right. a material right. that doesn't actually burn up and, and fail, um, right? Like that's that's what that is. And I don't, this, I don't believe, I didn't get into detail like what it, that wire is, but I think you're right. Like it does not heat up, but it's the electricity running through it does cause it to emit light. And there's actually a little mm. reflective cavity um, that, that helps spread the light out. And it's incredibly bright. Not always, but basically depending on how much a current you have flowing through is how much light you're going to emit. And up to and a to certain point. to be clear, they are, they are generating heat because your your big LEDs like the uh, thousand watt uh, comps yard floodlights that are LED <laughs> yeah. that I've got yeah. you know that I put up recently they they're built in such a way they got cooling fins to yeah. keep them cool they do and and as a guy who works for the utility who just put up LEDs all around the city um, absolutely they definitely create heat um, it's actually a lot of the resistors and other pieces that help and we'll talk about it help regulate the voltage and help help keep mm. things from burning out the LEDs, uh, they end up, uh, usually when you have those things in there, they're regulating the electricity by turning that energy into heat. 
And so because of those things, along with the, the, emit, the stuff that's emitted by the LED, like all those things need to be spread somehow. Uh, the heat has to be shed somehow. Otherwise, it'll start to destroy the component. Um, but it's not anywhere near like uh, low-pressure sodium or any of the other traditional light bulbs that were used in the past. Those get hot as well. They actually get way, uh, way more hot than LEDs. So, um, but they still do emit heat. So it's not something to, to uh, not consider. So a traditional LED, you'll have basically two legs. You'll have a long leg, which is a positive, and a short leg, which is your, uh, your negative or cathode. Um, and they basically go up into this little like epoxy housing, uh, the lens, basically. And then there's like, you'll, if you look inside, you'll be able to see like there's this two wedge shapes that kind of um, one's, like a, one's like a little pointer, like a little arrow, and then the other one is like the counterpart to that sticking out over top of it. And they call that an anvil because if you look at what an anvil has, it usually has a point that kind of sticks out, right? So, um, and then so that goes from the, the pointer to the anvil is the direction it flows. Uh, and then uh, another way, uh, especially if you snipped off all of your leads and you're going, uh-oh, which side is which? <laughs> um, well, one way to test is it's a diode, so... Unless it's crazy uh, high voltage, the the power should only go one way. Um, however, uh, on every lens, which is basically the epoxy housing of the uh, the diode, um, there'll be a flat spot. That flat that flat spot that leg is the negative. Now that's assuming that's a round capsule. That's that's assuming. Well, I mean, I suppose yeah, there are some square ones. I have never seen one in person. Uh, every one I've ever seen has either been um, a like a dome round, kind of uh, bullet shaped, mm -hmm. or it's been a cylinder. And usually, and they're the reason why they're called the lenses. Basically, the light emits from the diode shooting out upward, typically, um, and based on how the lens is, is how the light gets spread. So, if you mm -hmm. want a focused beam, you can get. Uh, one of those LEDs that has a more focused thing, if you want something more diffuse, it'll be frosted or it'll have more bumps. Um, but if you want it to be crystal clear, uh, you can look around. So, And then they, cover, they come in almost every color of the rainbow, quite literally. So they'll come in uh, yellow, orange, red. Uh, the latest innovation happened probably when I was in grade school. They had found a way to come up with pure blue LEDs. And once they did that, that kind of opened up the whole world of, of LEDs being able to actually do all sorts of things. Um, and to clarify, that's not to say that they found a blue lens. It was the diode itself was emitting blue a light. Blue light, yeah. And it was incredibly efficient and incredibly powerful, too. And so all of a sudden, we, we could actually use this for lighting. Uh, so in, in all honesty, what you have, a white light, isn't really a, a light that's emitting uh, a diode that's emitting white. It's actually a diode that's emitting blue hitting a phosphorescent cob. And the cob emits, the phosphorescence emits the white light. If I understand that correctly. It, it, maybe I'm wrong. And write in. Tell me. Tell me. Uh, let's educate everybody. Um, but as I understand yeah. it, I think that's what, and that's part of why it's so bright. Because the, the blue is incredibly uh, efficient as far as light is concerned. Um, okay. Interesting. So you basically have, uh, I'm going to go cover, 
was about like five different kinds. You have a SMDs, which are surface mounted diodes, and they're like itty bitty. And they go from itty bitty to wow, that's tiny. <laughs> from like, okay. you know, like, um, I don't even know how to, like a micro to pico. You know, you have it like on a, on a little chip to pico is like, it looks like a, like somebody dropped a grain of um, uh, pepper. That's about as big as a diode yeah. is. Well, I mean, uh, but have you messed with the you've messed with the Arduino's, right? Yeah, but that's all. All those little lights, the the lights that are on any any board, Arduino's one, like uh, what is this? The twenty two and one uh, USB. Like when you plug in a USB and a light comes on, that's an SMD. It's, okay, it's on your. It's usually on a chipset that you solder in. It's a surface solder. Um, so those are itty bitty. Also, if you get those fairy lights, those ones are labeled as fairy lights where they're just like thin wire and then they have just spots that emit. That's what they are. That's the surface mounted diodes on the wire. Okay. And then they're usually battery because they're usually very low power. A part of the reason why they're on circuit boards, just for indicators, they don't really take up much. Uh, they don't need much energy to emit and they don't need much juice. So, um, don't need much current. Um, <clears throat> That being said, um, you can use those. Uh, oftentimes, they'll be attached to a battery pack, those uh, fairy lights of like two or three AAA. So three volts, four and a half volts. It's enough to run like a whole string of those lights. They're not super bright. They're bright enough to light things up, but they're not going to like carry very far. Um, then you got three millimeters, which are kind of the smaller version of the traditional. You know, a lot of the a lot of the LEDs anybody's ever seen are the five millimeters. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. about as thick as a foam, piece of foam board, right? Dollar Tree foam board or a poster board. Uh, that's how thick those are. So this is a diode that's that round. Um, so the three millimeters uh, smaller, about half size that. Uh, they're oftentimes a little less bright. They run on a little bit less voltage. So they require less voltage to start emitting light, three and a half to five volts. Um, and five millimeters work in the same way, but you can also get them to be a little bit higher and get them to run as like 12 volt DC. Um, mm. Let's see. Uh, five millimeter tends to come in a bigger variety of end treatments, um, but most of them are pretty commonly round and uh, like, like bullet shaped, domed. Um, and then let's see, then you have your LED strips and your LED strips will get into more detail because those are the ones that we typically use in RC planes um, to light like uh, the entire wing. You know, either the people will mount them on the surface pointing out and it'll be really, really bright or that tends to cause an issue called uh, night blindness where you're too busy looking at your plane. If you look anywhere else, all you can see are those LEDs, <laughs> <laughs> which means you can't see anything else. Uh, kind of dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes, especially if you're working with uh, the foam planes, you turn them inward and they will light up the entire plane. Either you, you, you put them into the inside of the plane or inside of the wing, or you cut a little slot that you can kind of slide them into and it will light up that wing. And a lot of people will light the entire plane. So instead of looking for orientation lights, which is what the five millimeter and three millimeter lights are great for, um, because they'll be the like the flashing strobe or the the red or green light or the you know whatever those whatever lights you want for those, and they're even good for the, like the little 
logo lights on a plane. Because you can have those those five millimeters kind of be like a spotlight end treatment. So it'll shoot out in a kind of a cone. And it'll be good for okay. like highlighting an area on your plane. So you kind of set it up on the wing and they're lightweight so that's and small. So um so we'll talk about the LED strips. They come in typically in a, a direct current five volt or twelve volt. I think you can also and then what they do is they basically run a a converter circuit from a your AC plug and then they'll you know like any wall charger kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last but not least, they have like the cob pucks is what I'm going to call them. They're a little round, and they typically just uh, emit white diodes, like the white Ooh. and warm white lights. Now, you can get them in multicolor, and you can get the indi- – and we'll talk about the individual addressable, like I'll call them pucks. But they're basically the same thing as a strip light, but they're just one of those LEDs on a, on a hard – chip basically yeah that's it but that's that's essentially the led strip but you just have that mounted on a little chip as opposed to the cob puck is like the same kind of thing but it's just white it's just a white phosphor and it has like four legs sticking off positive in and positive and negative in and positive and negative out much like what you got there yeah, so the only difference is you're going to have an extra wire for the control input for what color you want that to actually emit so what what Matt was saying, uh, I I found some LEDs that I had from years ago. I think I mentioned them before. Mm-hmm. I've got some too. Um, okay. Yep. And I I don't know that these would be addressable. Uh, they probably are because there's because there's no other circuitry. It's just uh, yep. six contacts. That's all you need. You need a positive. You need a return, and you need uh, data. And so what to do is the data passes through and it kind of removes a count for you basically have a list of colors that you want, right? And every time it gets to the next thing, it reads whatever is, I think it, it could either be in front or in back, but it reads the data stream and basically takes off that first number, uses that to emit that color, and then it passes the rest of the numbers through. Maybe I just don't. And you could you could string them all along together. You have a DO and a DI, right? We'll, we'll get into that. A what? Uh, yeah, so you, I just I, have I up, think this is just three contact points for the three look on color the, circuits nope, on it. Nope. Uh, maybe could okay. be, but probably not. I'll get okay, into that in enough. detail in just a second. Because I, I th- <laughs> okay, go ahead. Sorry. It's a good question because when you look at these things, you're like, what in the world is going on with these things? Um. So almost all of the ones I'm talking about are DC current because what we use on airplanes is DC current. We don't use AC. So so I've kind of limited our discussion here to DC. And um, and one of the things you're going to need to look for, especially with the 3 millimeter and 5 millimeters, is look for the manufacturer or look for a traditional, like, standard light bulb set, uh, standard bulb set, you're going to look for the forward voltage. And that's basically the amount of power that needs to be there to light the diode. If there's not enough voltage, it will not light the light. It will not push past that bridge and light the diode. So it has to have enough energy to to pass pass over. Now, depending on the color, it ranges from 2.2. Oh, was it 2.5 volts 
to 3.2 volts all the way up to 3.5 volts when you're doing like a multicolor one. Like they have a couple flashing ones where it's like all in one. It's a little weird. But basically the, the forward voltage on that is 3.5. And so what you do is you get your whatever your normal voltage is and then you use a resistor to basically limit the voltage going across the LED, that individual LED, or that string. Okay. And so if you've got 12 volts, you look at, well, I've got three LEDs needing 3.2. So, okay, I've got 9.1 volts, like 12 minus 9.1. I've got, you know, uh, 2.9 volts. I've got to resist. You figure out what resistor you need. And there's a couple um, online calculators. You go to a lot of the LED suppliers, and they will, you tell them what you want to do with your LEDs, like this is what I have, and they will help you figure out what resistor you need to put in line, typically upstream. So you have your red leg come in, goes to the, the resistor, then goes to the long leg of the LED, and then it'll return on the black. Uh, otherwise, you're putting too much voltage across, and you could burn out your LED. Man, that's that's just weird, because I would have thought 3 volt was 3 volt regardless. And it was, you know, maybe you have a little bit of voltage loss across enough things, but not enough that, like, 12 volt was only going to be able to drive 3 well, LEDs. Well, okay, so what you do is you end up putting, so those only take a certain amount of amperage, right? Well, if you do them, those three strings in parallel with a bunch of other three strings, each one pulling... 0.1 amp or whatever it is. Now you've got, you know, however many of those, that's how many amps you need to run that whole circuit. You could run 30 lights. You just have to mm. have them in parallel. And it's just the only, the ones in series are going to add the one in parallel are going to pull additional current. They just have to have the same voltage drop from one end of that string to the other. As long as you have that mm. and you have the appropriate resistor to make sure you're not putting too much through, they'll have it. And what you'll notice is that if you've got too long of a string of LEDs, you'll have a reduction in brightness as you go along that small string of three or four LEDs that you have in line. Does that make sense? Hmm. So as you go along that stream, the first one's going to be bright, second one's going to be bright, third one's going to be sort of bright, and the last one you'll know, well, that's a, that's a bit dimmer. Uh, and it's no different with the strip LEDs, but we'll get into that. They've been designed in such a way that you can go pretty far before you start seeing it. But I noticed that when I plugged in my plane, when I apparently there's not enough amperage coming out of one of the the packs to light the whole string the correct like the correct amount of current. I think I like mm -hmm. two amps, right? And it the way that one runs, I need three amps. So when I plug in the two amp, it gets like halfway around and then it starts to get dimmer. And you'll notice that. So that's, it's just one of those things. We'll, when we'll get into that in a second. Let me finish what I was doing. Uh, I talked about the, the uh, color options, but let me go through them again, just to make sure I didn't miss one. So you have white, you'll have warm white. You'll have, you know, red, yellow, orange, blue, green, um, Purple, you'll have violet, you'll have ultraviolet. So you, they actually send UV uh, diodes. Um, I think that's everything. Uh, you'll even have ones that do multicolor. Like if you've ever seen one of those bouncy balls that they give kids and they bounce them against the ground and they flicker and flash all the colors 
not any stop. It's pretty much one of those. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just something that they, they kind of packaged because it's useful for toys. Uh, you can sell a lot of toys that way. Uh, now, as I understand it, the colors of the LEDs didn't come out all at one time. Yeah, for the most like part, it was each. red. You just had red up and through the right. 70s, pretty much. And then each of each color that they discovered, like it was its own uh, chemical discovery, if you yeah. will, yep. that led to each new color. Mm-hmm. And like I said, and like we talked, blue was the last. And I think they were not just surprised at blue, but they were surprised, surprised at how efficient, how much more efficient it was than most of the other stuff. Hmm. Um, Exactly. So what you'll find is that uh, I, I didn't find a chart. I know that if you look around, you'll find a chart with basically what the typical forward voltages are. And you can see like at red is like the lowest forward voltage to get it to work. And honestly, that's that's a voltage that you could do with a couple batteries. So you'll find a lot of toys that require like a couple button, button batteries will have red LEDs and not. They may not actually have some of the brighter stuff, the blues, things that take a higher voltage to start. So right. there's like red and a handful of the other colors. Uh, I'm trying to think of the what they are. Darn it! I should have I should have found that and brought it in. But anyway, so you're going to need to look those up. So designing with the five millimeters and three millimeter LEDs tends to take like a lot more like calculations, and you're going to want to plan it out. Um, there's some pretty cool things that you can do though. You can use a little timing circuit which is like a little chip. It's, uh, I think, an uh, SE555 chip. It's literally just a timing circuit. But what you can do with that and a couple other pieces, you can start making flashing LEDs that basically go from one to the other and back and Mm -hmm. forth, which is perfect for when you want strobe lights or you want just like an identifier light on the tail or if you want your red and green to just kind of of come in and out. Uh, So you can set that up. Uh, but you can also do it through Arduino because that has a timer on it, and you can set that up that way. Uh, almost all quadcopter flight controllers on on uh, Betaflight or a lot of the iNav, they will have an LED section. And it basically, it, there's an LED out uh, on your chip, and then you basically bring that to your, your strip of smart addressable LEDs, and then, you know, the first one is that first one that you set up. And you, there's a way you can set it up. It's pretty detailed. We're not going to cover it here. Uh, I don't even know it that well. I just know it can be done. And it's pretty cool when <laughs> it can be done. Um, okay. But you can use L- addressable LEDs through that. And you could basically come up with a program much like you would with an Arduino or an, uh, like a Nano or a Pico or whatever the, those, little, those little control boards. Um, but you could do it as simple as just that timing chip. And I believe um, capacitor uh, and possibly uh, a resistor and a diode or something like that. And then all of a sudden you're like, you're in business to make a couple flashers. Um, so that brings us to, um, that brings us to the light strips, which is probably the most exciting part. Um, but I don't know if you've looked at like what the nomenclature of a light strip is. I have not. Uh, okay, let me, I'll give you an example and see if you can even (laughs) dissect what the heck that even means. Right. 
Oh, uh, okay. you want an, uh, an LED strip. Do you want a WS28212B5050 IP67? Or do you want an IP25? Or or did you want a WS2811 or 20, 2015? 28, 2015. Dude, I just want some LEDs to put on my plane. That's how I felt. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> after you listen to this, you'll be able to go, okay, I know what I want, right? Um, so what you'll notice is the first number, that WS2812B, um, that it's WS28, and there's like two numbers. And basically, um, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of how, how to put that. Uh, so... They basically started to evolve as like, uh, hey, we can put these little LEDs on a strip, right? One's red, one's green, one's blue. And then if we can control mm-hmm. which ones are on when, we can actually make any color of the rainbow. So what they did is they basically made a strip and they put red, green, blue. I don't know if that's the official order. Um, and then they would have a break where you could cut it. And like there's like a, uh, what are the what are those called? The, the little pads that you could solder stuff on right yeah i connection points right connection points and basically every three of those so that unit there can make any color you want if you have a controller Mm -hmm. and so what they just made a strip of you know how many of these 60 meters or five meters or whatever so so 15 feet because it comes from china so it comes in meters um and then so every three you can you can cut it and then you can string those together and solder them how you want and then you could tell the controller to say, hey, make this whole strip this color or make a chase or make it dim, make it bright. And so they, they started with that. That's the WS2811. Okay. So those are RGBs. They're basically three individual LEDs, one red, one green, one blue. And it basically has three wires. There's a positive, a negative, and a signal line. The signal line basically tells what color those three LEDs are trying to make. Okay. <clears throat> so that's really useful when you have okay. like a whole strip. You just sort of want a general ambiance. That's awesome. But if you're looking to like create a pattern or a sign or a, or like uh, saying, hey, this line of 20 in the front of the wing, I want this, the next three or six, I want to have a different color. And then this is, these five here are going to be an exhaust. They're going to be tied to throttle. Okay, that now you need something a little bit more involved, right? Uh, so that's where okay. the 2812s come in, 2813s and 2815s. And basically the 2812 is traditionally, uh, I think they're, they're f- were they five volts? I'm just trying to see the notes. So basically the 2812s were, realized there was a problem. They, they basically made a, a B and that's all that's sold nowadays. Uh, and basically, they're RGBs all in one little white kind of square. And in that circuit is a little tiny control board that runs power to three different segments, three different diodes. One's blue, one's red, and one's green. And then it passes that signal on down the line. Mm-hmm. So that also has three wires. It'll be... Um, uh, but with the 2812, it's kind of like your old Christmas lights. When one of those goes, if there's a connection that gets broken, there goes the rest of the string. So people are like, okay. oh, this sucks. I hated this one on my Christmas lights. I wanted it on my LEDs. 
This is awful. <laughs> <coughs> right? Um, but the cool part is they're individually addressable, and you could hook it up to an Arduino and set any color, any pattern, and you can use some of the programming to actually create some pretty intricate things. That's where you can do the Night Rider, you know, little following red LED, kind of going zooming back and forth, that kind of fun. Um, and now I wanted to mention that there is an Eco version of 2812B, and the Eco version is basically instead of using a copper lead that goes from the chip to the individual LED uh, diodes, the individual diodes, they actually use an alloy. And what ends up happening is there's more resistance in the alloy than there is in copper. And so the power doesn't go as far down the line. And you'll start to notice a, a color shifting as you go further down the line of LEDs. Hmm. It's cheaper. And in many circumstances, you can, you can basically inject power into your strip. We can talk about that in a second. But basically, if you notice that your power is dipping... And that's what's basically your causing more resistance. As you get further down the line, the voltage starts dropping and the current starts right. dropping and it's not enough to create all the colors the way you like. So to fix that, you basically put a little jumper in there to inject power there and it brings the color back up the way it's supposed to. It won't change the, the information, but it'll change the power level that's going along the strip. Okay. Um, so an eco is, eco is a way of, Doing that, if you know you're not going to have a really long string, right? So you can save some money there. Um, and again, these are all pretty much 5 volt. Although you can get these in 12 volt as well. Uh, 2813s are basically 2812s, but they have uh, an extra wire, an extra wire. So they have four wires going into them. The second wire is a backup. So if your signal gets broken, it'll use the backup wire, the backup signal. So hmm. the, the signal that you want of like what color you want everything to be gets sent down both, uh, uh, what did I call it, DO and D1. So that's the, the digital input in uh, one and two, or basically zero and one. And they go in parallel. And if one is broken, they constantly, the chip constantly looks for the thing from D0. But if it doesn't see it, it then starts looking at D1. So if you have one break in the line, it'll continue. That, that one LED will be busted, and it'll go to the next one, and it'll pick up. Hmm. Continue your program like it, the first one, the one that was busted, isn't, isn't even a problem. Just keep going. Okay. Which is awesome. So you're like, well, nice. Now my stuff won't get busted. But if it happens again, like if you have more than, two, more than one break, you'll, you'll lose the you'll lose the continuity and then the rest of the string will go dark from there. But it allows some sort of um, uh, redundancy. They're a lot more expensive. They're, Are they? Yeah. They're, what I've noticed, they're about 25 to 30% more expensive. Hmm. Like a, a string will be, let's say, 30 bucks. These will be more, like 45. Uh, and then you have... Then you'll have the WS2815s. They're RGBs, single single chip RGBs. Um, and they each one will have a, a multicolor LED in there, just like all the other ones. Uh, it has the redundant failures like the 2813, but it's 12 volt. So what that means is it stays brighter for longer. Okay. 
and the wider stays wider for further down the strip. That kind of thing. Um, and then, the, then the next thing. Okay, so that kind of covers the WS, right? And then the then then you can actually buy the colored ones, like where the whole strip is just that one color. You basically tell your manufacturer, I want I want that color. Send me a strip of that. And each one of those will pull a little bit different current, but basically, as long as you have this the right input voltage, you're good for most of that line. You may have to inject power, which is basically uncovering one of those lead connection spots and adding another parallel of power from the power source at that mm -hmm. spot. Um, so the next thing would be the 50-50. So what does that mean? What do you think that means? Could not tell you. It is the size of LEDs in millimeters. So 50-50 is 5.0 by 5.0. So 5 millimeters by 5 millimeters. That's okay. the size of the chip. So 3528s are smaller. They're not going to emit as much light. They may not take as much power. I didn't look to see how much power they're supposed to take. Um, that just means that they're just slightly different sizes. So the the one that's most common on the market right now is 5050s. You'll you'll see those, but you can get them different sizes. So you can look, but that's what that number means. And then the IP67. That's one I was like, what in the world is that? Cuz that is like what what are we talking about? Um, before we get into that, though, let's talk about how many you can get on a strip. As which you'll see as you go, okay, I know what I want. What do you mean? How many? How many are on this strip? So you can get them in like thirty LEDs per meter, sixty LEDs per meter, uh, meter or one hundred and forty-four. Like one hundred and forty-four is like they're all like right next to each other. You know, yeah, sixty is like there's a gap, and thirty is like there's a dis a decent gap. So. Mm -hmm. If you're kind of lighting a general chamber and you don't want to see like pinpoints, you're going to want to do probably 60. Uh, if you want, um, like you want to be, you don't mind if there's like a little lull in the strength of the LED light, a 30 will probably work fine. And depending on your situation, you may not even see it. The 144 for uh, an RC plane at night will blind you when it's turned on. As a, as a, I've seen it. It's just awful bright because <laughs> there's just so many of them so close together. It creates what what feels like a, a, st a steady stream, like a steady line of light, which is cool until you're directly looking at it when the power goes on, and then you can't see anything at night. <laughs> that part sucks. Uh, and the other thing, you can also decide what color your back your back strip is colored. Is it black or is it white? Um, if you're putting it in a plane, like if you wanted to hide it, you know, in some situations, like especially on a stage or whatever, because you're doing stuff for a play, the black is going to be ideal. Like you don't want people to see it, right? But if you're in a plane, like white, you want to be as reflective as possible. So when I do my stuff, I typically grab the white. I've, I mean, I've grabbed the black stuff. It doesn't matter. But um, for I want to add reflectance. So I keep keep it to the white. Plus it blends in with the foam that I typically build out of. So. Mm -hmm. Um, we're talking about, let's see, uh, IP67 or IP whatever the heck. Um, let's see, IP ratings. So the first, uh, it basically IP is just, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's basically, uh, it's protective uh, rating. The first number is IP number number. The first number is reference to how dust proof it is or how 
uh, how protected it is against shorting and like what size of a thing it protects against, right? Okay. So a one is like a hand or a finger, right? And it goes to like a finger or a size of like the size of a piece of the dust, you know, like that's the kind of particle it protects against causing a short. So it gets smaller and smaller particle. So it protects against more and more stuff from potentially shorting it out. And then it becomes dust proof and at seven. So it goes from one to seven. Um, the moisture. Imagine a, imagine a piece of dust shorting out your LED. Well, I mean, if you have a, like a metal shaving, maybe. If you're in that kind of environment, you know what I mean? Where you, you have certain size things that kind of float around or, or potentially might create a conductive thing that might land right. on that by accident. Like if you're on a, if you're on a set, you know, and like people are doing all sorts of crazy stuff around, if they drop a paperclip that's not protected, right? Not coded. Mm-hmm. That might be what you're protecting against, you know, then you might want IP three something. And if there's no moisture, probably 3.1 or 3.0. Um, so moisture is uh, zero, is like no protective uh, piece on that. Uh, one is like a vertical droplet. Like if it's just dropping on your thing, it'll protect against it. Four is like splash. So if it's coming at a bunch of different angles, it'll protect it against that. But it's not like a, a stream uh, or any immersion, right? And like up to seven, seven is immersion for 30 minutes. It'll protect against that. And then I think they have eight, which is complete immersion. It's basically silicone coated, like dipped and dried. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about power injection. It's basically where you, where you get to the spot where the colors are starting to fade, where they're starting to change from one color that you want to something a little bit like near it. <laughs> you're gonna have a problem so you put in the the color basically you scrape off the lead you know, get it so the leads are exposed uh near that point and you create an additional parallel from your power source to put in there um you can do blinking there's um you can buy uh plain led pods that you can like literally like glue or tape on they basically have double double stick tape tape them on they're individually powered they're really bright LEDs, and they either you can set them to be strobe or you can set them to be all on. Um, but with a little ingenuity and those little timer chips or an ATT, uh, AT Tiny 85, it's like a little tiny board, um, you can put in some very simple programs and do some pretty cool stuff with it. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the I've seen some people also take altimeters, and they'll they'll with an Arduino they'll tie in the altimeter to what goes on, what kind of lighting scheme happens. So when you're doing your, you can do a visual vario in a gliding situation. So it'll basically flash red. It'll be red if it's coming down and green if it's going up. And otherwise it'll be like white or something if it's relatively neutral. And then how fast it flashes is how fast it's going down or how fast it's, you know, going up, right? The, The rate of descent. So you can set it up to do that kind of stuff. There's some really cool stuff. Some of them are pre-programmed. We'll, I think we'll have a couple links to those um, in the, the show notes. So go take a look if you're interested. They tend to cost somewhere like 35 to 50 bucks. Um, and uh, a lot of them were made very popular, at least. A lot of people talked about them when they were on the Night Radiance. 
Night Radiums have yeah. a have a whole light setup, and then you can uh, augment that with the Vario setup. Where basically, like, there's an add-on you could buy, and it hooks into that that LED controller set, and it basically adds the Vario and the other options. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty cool seeing those uh, Night Radiums flying up at Flight Fest. Oh man, those look so beautiful. Every time I go there, I'm like, I need to buy one. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no. How often am I going to do that? I mean, I'll fly the Radiant a lot, but I'll probably, I, I doubt I'll fly that, you know, with all the lights on. No, stuff. I'll just buy this Piranha instead. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. So uh, the other thing you might want to add are landing lights, which is basically like a, a group of LEDs on maybe a chipset with a PWM input or a power input. Um and that's just, and you basically set it on the front of your wing, pointing a little bit down. Um, if you, you set it up so it's on uh, a PWBM operated switch. So basically you can flip a switch on your transmitter and then it activates and allows you to close the circuit and light those landing lights. Um, what I've noticed is at dusk, having um, wingtip lights, a tail light, and landing lights you can turn on or off are really helpful for determining if your plane is coming or going. Big stuff. All right. I can see that. Good stuff. Uh, you can also get strobes, like LEDs that strobe. So look for those. Um, the comms you can get to be really crazy bright if you want. Um, you can buy, and, and you just look around. You, you'd be surprised what people have available uh, in small packages um, that are perfect for putting on your RC plane. So look around. Uh, LED strips are the quickest, easiest way to get a very bright plane that you can see its direction and uh, like all of it pretty quickly. So uh, that tends to be what people go for. And again, you know, if we're using a three cell battery, that's the voltage that these things run off of. Mm. Yeah. Or you could use a BEC for five volts and power it that way. All right. Well, I've been talking too much. It's time to get out of here, I think. <laughs> well no it was all good though it is because like it is it is it's it, good it's awesome i'm a, i used it to get my thought my stuff in gear and i'm excited about that good i just know it's right, well it's like we've been talking about some ago <laughs> well uh shall we talk about our workbenches for a few minutes and then get out of here yeah, we can for a brief minute okay what are you going to be working on well i'm going to button up that marabou uh, I'm going to mm -hmm. see if I can realign the P61 hood and get that on some wheels. And I've got to clean off the table before next weekend. That's enough for yeah, me. Yeah, you do. Dude, it's it's bad, too. Is it? <laughs> yes. You just had it good, though. I know. Well, I was. there's a whole build jewelry going on. It's a lot of planes. <laughs> February to, happened. Yeah, February happened. It made a mess of everything. Always does. What about <laughs> you, Joe? Uh... Get some more flights with the Phantom, probably, and um, I might crack into the uh, into the Nubatross. Finish the seven to, uh, and the Nubatross. I know, please, I know. please, for me, and finish and finish fixing the the Sea Duck and no, 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 the no, Depron no, no, wing. No, no, no. I never got around for, to. No, finish the Nubatross because you. I want you to submit that. I think that's going to be exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it'll be a fun plane for you to have just around i think you'll enjoy that when you want it and then this oh, well. the seven you're so close 
It's, I'm so close. I yeah. know. That's all. That's why I'm pushing on those two. I know. You're good, bud. All right, cool. Well, good. That'll, that'll keep right. you busy. Yeah, that and everything else going on. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, All uh, right. let's get every let's get everybody uh, what they need to get out of here. Um, yeah, because we've uh, we've run a little long today. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. Hopefully. Well, speaking of uh, anything else, no. Uh, just thanks for listening. Okay. <laughs> then, as always, thank you guys for tuning in and listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conference enjoyed this episode as much as Matthew and I have enjoyed having it. We enjoyed this conversation as much as Matthew and I have enjoyed having it. Boy, I'm off. Um, if you have any questions, thoughts, uh, things you want us to talk about, feel free to reach out to us. You can reach us at aviationrcnoob at gmail.com or you can reach Matthew at Matthew at aviationrcnoob.com or you can meet me, reach me at Joe at aviationrcnoob dot com uh we got the build party coming up on march 25th 8 mm-hmm. to 11 p.m eastern time um and feel free to pop into the discord channel link will be in the show notes below if you're uh, if you're working on the hangar rc submission you still have time getting it in and march 18th march 15th you can do it <laughs> all right and if uh if there's nothing else yeah. We'll see you guys next time. See you next time. Good pick on the 810, man. Thank you. Great end it. Oh, man. Okay, so we definitely got to make sure this doesn't get into any B-roll. Oh, what's that? Um... A lot of kids sit there going, why do I need to know trigonometry and all that, and geometry and all that stuff? And he's like, well, if I want to change the size of my wing and I want to know how much the wingtip has to sit off to do a four-degree angle, I want to know the height of the short leg, you know, like trigonometry. <laughs> you know, You know how long your wing is. You know what the angle is you want. You can use those two to figure out your height. Mm-hmm. Go walk tangent. Workhorse of the triangle world. When somebody goes, oh, what about the thing that, well, I don't know. Go back to that episode. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what episode? No, no idea. No, could not a, tell I you. I got a list, though. I got a list somewhere. I, I can find that. But you know what? Just in case, listen to them all again. Yeah, you should listen to them all. And <laughs> and tell at least uh, 10 people you think would enjoy it. That's right. I thought that, I thought it was going to be that Thunderbolt 2 became the A-10, but it seems to be the A-10 Thunderbolt 2. Okay, that's the uh, title and everybody just shortened it because nobody wanted to call it the Thunderbolt 2. If yeah. they just call it the... <laughs> <laughs> the shorthand for the A-10 burnt. <laughs> what, what plane is that? That's the Mm-hmm. Why do they call if it that? Was... Hold on, wait for it. <laughs> yeah. I think one guy one guy said, uh, that's the sound of freedom. Right. Um, and then another guy was talking about, yeah, that gunpowder, that smoke comes in, you smell it, and you, you kind of ride a high off of it almost. He's like, that's the smell of freedom right there. <laughs>